That was Youth Collapse and The Itch off of One Scene Unity, the amazing 2020 compilation that came out on From Within Records, featuring Greg Falchetto, our guest today. But before we start talking to him, let's get into some other things real quick. Thank you to everybody who reached out and gave me some insight on what they took out of the last episode. Alex and I had a great conversation. We touched on a lot of subjects. And in trying to give her a platform, it was very awesome to hear from people, mostly males, just on how her story affected them. And that was what the hope was, to open some eyes and allow Alex, who is an amazing talker, to get out there with her message and show the world the kind of things that happen at hardcore shows and to people that we call friends. What have I been listening to? More podcasts, obviously. I always fuck with Jocko, Lex Friedman, that kind of stuff. Ninja Rob podcast. Timmy Butterly, the brother of Paul Butterly from Kill Verona. He's got a really silly podcast called Dad Meat. Check that out. Also, check out Andy Rice. He has a podcast that comes out. I don't know if it comes out inter- intermittently. Is that the word for you? Intermittently? But every once in a while, I'll pop up on the uh, internet and I'll check out and see that Andy has a new podcast episode here and there. Check his shit out, too. For me, I used to play bass not very well. So listening to Hoya, Craig Satari from Sick of It All and Agnostic Front and you today talk alongside Mike Gallo from On The Rise and Agnostic Front about the bass was a really awesome episode. That came out on Smoking Word Podcast, which is Hoya Rock's podcast. Post-America Podcast, you hear me talk about it all the time. Richie, Mav, they went over uh, questions, some silly ones, some legit ones, some talk about the Roman history. You know, I love that shit. I listened to that the entire time I was cooking dinner Saturday night before the UFC. And they have a new episode dropping today featuring Aaron Knuckles, Aaron Buckus from Death Threat. Check that out as well once you're done listening to this episode. Shout out to Broadsheet Breakdown. Came out with a new episode. It was great. In fact, they kind of touch on some stuff that me and the OG talk about in regards to the first hardcore bands, what came first. Vinny kind of said some things that made me think like, yeah, you can actually rock some music and be like, yo, this is some ill shit. And here you find out like, oh, fuck, this shit's old already. But, you know, back in the day, that was the thing. There was a lot involved with tape trading and... A lot of these kind of elements are going to come not only in this feed with some of the older gentlemen and ladies that I'm going to have in the coming months, but also in another project that I've been working on. And I'm really excited to reveal it. I don't have a name and it's going to take a long time for it to pop up, but there's a lot of hardcore history, not like Dan Carlin, but like hardcore punk history that uh, I'm going through in these interviews. And I'm just so psyched. I wanted to tell you guys about it, even though I can't give you a name and release and all that bullshit. Since the outset at Hardcore, there's always been those entrepreneurial figures, you know, the ones that not only subscribe and live the DIY lifestyle, but put it into their own personal lives as far as the kind of businesses that they have and run. This is a huge deal for us as a community to own our own businesses and to take the way that we make these t-shirts and sell these cassette tapes and turn it into a full thriving livelihood. COVID was a motherfucker and my heart's <laughs> break for my friends who struggled through the whole thing and I really hope that we are getting to the end of that that being said this podcast is brought to you specifically to kind of go over not only the techniques and tips and history 
from people that are entrepreneurial, but to illuminate and disseminate information that these people gleaned just from being in bands, just from being promoters. And it's an interesting thing to think about that we may take for granted. I hope that time and time again, as I talk about this in these episodes, this is the stuff that you can learn just listening to this episode, how these people manage to take just shit that they know from being in bands and going to shows and turn into a thriving business. That being said, big shout outs to American Barbell Club, Florida. Expansion, kicking some ass. Shout outs to Pete Morrissey. The new Brass City looks amazing. Shout outs to Mike Barletti, full owner of Cadillac Deuce. I believe he's keeping the name. You know, there will be some tattooers on this show at some point. More record label people. I got a slew of amazing band people with some awesome stories and just a lot that we all can relate to. Great stories and history and just kind of not just the behind the scenes, but behind the people and the emotions. I really, really can't tell you how much I appreciate hearing that you are interacting with the episodes and enjoying them. Like, follow, subscribe. The biggest thing I tell everybody, repost the fucking shit. I got a billion followers on fucking Instagram. I post the shit, a hundred people like it because of the bullshit algorithm and them trying to get us to pay. So I'd like more people to be able to hear these stories. Fuck making money or becoming Joe Rogan. That's not the point of this bullshit. It's really just so people who I admire and respect who have amazing stories of grassroots learning or just, you know, teaching themselves like juice, but really just coming into their own. And I want to share this with people all over. So tell people about the fucking show going forward. I have a couple new ideas. We're going to have a couple return guests for the first time. So back to back two guys from a band one week, one guy, one week, the next guy, it's all going to come together. There's a lot of recording episodes now. And I am going to put out a little calendar of like when specific releases are coming out. Unless you tell me in comments or just DM that you like the drop. If you like the drop style where you don't know who the guest is, let me know. Now, on to our guest, Greg Falchetto. It's kind of hard to think about him and not think of the kid that used to go ahead and just be in the road with us. Like get in the van Friday night or Thursday night sometimes and just travel with Shattered Realm. And he's been through some pretty hairy shit with us. And I just think of him as a younger kid, even though he's a grown-ass man, owns his own fucking house, watched his daughter go from being a little baby to a beautiful child, married to one of our friends, Natalie, and just an incredible dude that I watched come up in hardcore. I'm very happy to have him on the show. The track you first heard on this episode is Youth Collapse, called, and uh, the song's called The Itch. What's interesting is this is a Devo kind of band. There's only three dudes in it. Danny... Colombo, who plays in the last version of Mongoloids, and you know, there's like 85 versions of Mongoloids, so she at least know who the last guy who played guitar in it was, and Adam, who sings for the band Orthodox, and Greg, and that track came out on the amazing One Scene Unity comp, which I now have on LP, thank you very much, Carter, he did a fucking great job, I hope he does one every fucking year, it was so good. And these guys have never really played. You can check them out. They got some tracks on Spotify. And at the end of this interview, you'll hear me talk about how we had to put the track on. But I bring all this up because it feels like in the last couple of years, as Greg is no longer a mongoloid, still doing back to school jam, living on the West Coast and working and then coming home to the East Coast to his family, 
busting his ass, he still managed to start these bands. Uh, It's fucking incredible. And so I'm pretty psyched on this track that we opened the show up with. Greg Falchetto was someone who legitimately grew into hardcore as a 11 or 12 year old kid. And we start the conversation off about the kind of bands he was into before he got into like the meat and potatoes of hardcore. And through all the shit he did, whether it was like road crew, just selling merch and learning shit, he turned into a full-time job many years later. And I'm not going to say he's balling out like Kanye style, but he makes a good living just working using the things that he learned to selling t-shirts and the business end of booking shows. And it's absolutely incredible. And He's a great figure, and this is the kind of person I want to have on the podcast because there's lessons to be learned, and I hope you really enjoy his story. I really hope you enjoy his story. This is the third person in, I think, four weeks that we had from New Jersey. So January is like a New Jersey Harker month. But let me know what you think about the episode at the end. I have a couple quick notes. Thank you. Let's rock. Today we're talking to Greg Falchetto, someone who has been a figure for a long ass time in New Jersey hardcore, which for me is weird because I just remember a kid that would jump in the Shattered Realm van and take some of the craziest voyages and chaos with us. And I sometimes have to look and go, holy fuck, how long ago that was. In the time from Greg's earliest beginnings in hardcore, he had a passion that would eventually grow to push him beyond just being a hardcore person through his own band Mongoloids and through constant touring into the world of actual band management, which took him out of hardcore. And a lot of what we're going to talk about is his, not only his love and steadfast resolve to stick within the chaos of New Jersey hardcore, but what he learned from those days and how it made him a better professional in the management world that he now lives in. So Greg, thank you for coming on the show. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Like all things we do here. I always like to start at the beginning and I've always just had you around us. So I never really had any thought as to what your beginnings were. So this is actually going to be something interesting for me to listen and learn. What were you listening to at home? And what was the stuff that really first got you into hardcore? To be honest, at home, there wasn't a ton of music. Um, My dad was out of the picture pretty early. And I grew up until I was like, 10 or 12 or I guess 10 in uh with my grandparents in Clark New Jersey and then um my mom was kind of like saving up to get a house in a town called East Brunswick which like had like a good school system so she wanted to like move to a town with a good school system so we moved there and then I started going to school there just just public school but you know how they rate the public school system so East Brunswick had like a nicer public school system so she was saving money and we lived with my grandparents when I was younger um but there wasn't a ton of music in my house per se i mean you know radio hits and stuff like that but but nothing that really like stuck out the kid my first i guess experience with music was the kid across the street from my grandparents who was like my best friend at the time he had five brothers or four four brothers four brothers and a sister and one of his older brothers had like aerosmith cds and I'm trying to think what else, like just like just typical shit like that, Pearl Jam. And he showed us when I was pretty young, uh, Sublime 40 Ounces to Freedom. And he would like, he was like talking about it. He talked about how cool it was that they covered bands like 
bad religion and descendants. And this was all, you know, I'm, I know it now because I, I can look back and I know what's on the record. But at that time, you know, I didn't know what the hell any of that stuff was. And, you know, I thought the artwork was crazy, though, with the sun. So we would always, when he wasn't there, listen to the album. And, and I guess that was my first interest into music. Then when I started going to school, probably in like sixth or seventh grade, there is something called the mentor program in my school, in my public school, which was basically like kids that didn't have a father or a mother would get like lined up with one of the teachers or, you know, people at the school to kind of like hang out with and talk to. So I got lined up with this guy, Mr. Ganji. And he was like, I think he's a history teacher. And he was the one that like, you know, he would ask me a bunch of questions and it was, it was chill. He was pretty normal. Honestly, it wasn't like he was like trying to be my father or anything like that. He just literally talked to me for a couple hours after school, two or three days a week. And then one day I told him, Oh yeah, like, yeah, sublime is cool or whatever. Like I just mentioned it. Then the next day he brought me this CD that was like mostly punk. It was, it was called, he wrote on a CDR, he burned the CD and he wrote on the CDR, mostly punk slash ska 1999. I think it was. And on that CD, he put a ton of stuff. And uh, I'm trying to think, like, like Blink-182 Blink was on there. Um, a ska band called Springheel Jack was on there, which was like a band from Connecticut that one of the horn players went on to be a Mighty Mighty Boss Tones. And I fucking loved them. I still, I still like them. Um, Real Big Fish. Sunday Drive, which was the starting line before they were the starting line. Maybe it was 2000. It could have been, it was 19, which is from their, their first record, Waiting. So in my head, I was like, oh shit, I'm, I'm from East Brunswick. I really connect with this. Like, this is sick. So, so I guess those, those two specific songs on, on the, um, let me see real quick. I think the Glassjaw song was The Snow Veil from Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. So, you know, which is, heavier you know heavier in comparison to all the ska stuff that was on there and i guess that kind of like opened my eyes now to like a whole new world i was trying to think of some of the stuff that you were referencing and i guess spring Hill jack and these names are like names that pop through my world but not something i'm familiar with to uh recognize or be like oh yeah i remember that but definitely seen those names in passing so i guess being introduced to like you know what that underground music was at the time were you cognizant of like large concerts or was your first live music experience something on a smaller scale no i wasn't i wasn't i wasn't really aware of any live events yet because i was i was young so i'm trying to seventh grade maybe i don't know like 13 or or is that how old no maybe i'm younger probably it was before high school, 100%. Maybe it was eighth grade. I don't remember how old I was, but, but yeah, it was, it was 100% before high school. Because high school, freshman year is when I started going to live events. Because when I went to high school, um, which was, I guess, I graduated in 2004. So I guess 2000. Yeah, I guess 2000 is when I started going to live shows. Because a girl, the first day of high school, in the hallway, there was this girl, Andrea, and she was like a senior at the time, but she was wearing a real big fish shirt. 
And I was so excited to see somebody wear a real big fish shirt. It wasn't even about like, oh, like she's a, she's a senior, I'm a freshman or anything like that. I ran right after I was like, oh man, I love that. Like, and just started talking to her. You could tell she like thought I was a dumbass, but also was like kind of charmed that I was like that excited about it. So she kind of took me under her wing to be like, okay, you're way younger. Like make sure your mom doesn't give a shit, but I'm gonna like drive you to shows and like take you places. And she took, she took me a bunch of places. Like we went to go see, I'm trying to think like dashboard at Wayne dashboard confessional, like Wayne firehouse. She took me to a lot of shows. Like she drove me to a lot of shows and she was cool. Like she was a really normal girl and it wasn't anything like, like she, she treated me like a dumbass younger brother, but I just appreciated having a way to get to the shows. So I was like, okay, this is cool. Well, especially at that time, a lot of the bands that were coming through, much like Dashboard is up, there's a small contagion of halls all through central New Jersey and South Jersey, et cetera, that were the prime place where all these bands kind of getting established. So I'm not surprised that you were at that stage where you, that's what you were checking out, because even in the hardcore world, those halls were a big part of the life's blood of like New Jersey hardcore at that time. Now... You're listening to all this stuff. What was the first thing that you can say for certain was directly hardcore that you interact with it? And how did you find it? I mean, I'd say like, I always go back to Glassjaw just cause I, I mean, seeing like, you mean like, like underground or like what? Like, cause, cause they were still I, so small. I guess, I guess, I guess if you wanted to split hairs, I, I try to get away from the, what is and what isn't hardcore. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't put them in the pantheon of greatest hardcore bands. So <laughs> I guess for the sake of argument's sake, they're not not a hardcore band. But I don't really care about talking about them. <laughs> Fair enough. And I, there's a whole nuance. I hate the fucking word adjacent. I've told you that. Yeah. I think it's the stupidest term ever, and I think that there's tons of things that are relative glass jaw being one of them that they're a band that is far more uh than just your average hardcore band musically emotionally lyrically and and so they're they're definitely a quality band that being said what was the most stripped down underground shit that you eventually would have run into at the first like inkling was it like a sick of it all was it some local shit like what got you into like the nuts and bolts of what what the actual scene and hardcore was at the time um okay so like so i need a bridge I, I need a bridge to figure out how you went from being in these dumb shows as a young kid <laughs> to how how we got stuck taking you in the fucking van on shattered realm trips that's what i'm trying to get to so probably a year after this literally september 2011 um or 2001, sorry. Yeah, 2001. Yeah, yeah. So, me up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so September 2001, Andrea brought me to the show that was the drive through Records CMJ Showcase. And on that show, uh, Juliana Theory played, Thursday played, and then all the drive through Records band. I don't know if you know what that is, but it was like Finch. I know what that is. Yeah, yeah that, we had um, Little League was going to be on that, but yes. they didn't do tours. Yeah, I remember when all that happened, you know, I mean, because you got to remember is punishment and all the bands were playing and like drive-through was like 
probably triple B size or bridge nine size at the time when all these bands that you're talking about, like they weren't so giant, they were still establishing themselves. I, I remember all that. Yeah. And, you know what? I'm completely wrong actually, because before this happened, we, um, or maybe it was right. The time I see, I suck with memory stuff. So like, I'm just going to tell this part and then I think this is right, but I could be wrong. So, so we went to the CMJ showcase. She brought me and she oh, introduced shit. me. Through her Say it again. I said, Oh shit. Uh, this is a real quick to people listening. CMJ was a thing called college, college music journal. And unfortunately because the underground didn't have the benefit of its own voice without the, with the internet, not really being as exposed then college music journal was this showcase of shows where they would get some of the coolest fucking bands together to play. So you'd have like the biggest bands like VOD, Snapcase, be on these college music journal shows to show people like this is college music. This is the underground. And that shit went on even to like fucking 2008. And I'm always like, maybe in 2009. And it was always like weird, like, oh, you guys all play these stupid fucking showcases to hope to get bigger on this when the hardcore scene already loves you. I never understood it. But that's what Greg's talking about. His college music journal was a, had like a big showcase showing the burgeoning upcoming music acts at a time. And it was a big show. It was at, uh, it was in Times Square at WWF. Oh yeah, they were always huge. They were always big deals. Yeah. yeah. It was at the WWF restaurant before they changed to WWE and uh, the restaurant they got rid of. But yeah, it was like, it's a huge show and there's a ton of people there. But she had a friend that met us there or dro- he drove us there actually. His name was Sean, Sean Sullivan. And he, um, you know, he was talking to me and obviously making fun of me because he was more like hardcore related he he liked like thursday i guess and some of those bands but he was he was like a hardcore kid and he kind of was asking me a million questions and i would talk to him about bands that i liked and bands from new jersey like um what the, uh, i don't even know like i i don't know but anyway so he kind of from that point got my number and he lived in scotch plains and he had heard that, that i was from clark which were pretty close and and I was still going to my grandparents a ton at that time because obviously I've lived there for a long time. So from there, yeah, him and I started hanging out like every weekend. And he was older than me too. I mean, he was he's probably like five years older than me, but he could drive and he had a, a car and he just started bringing me. I remember like maybe I met him because this was also a crazy time because it was right after September 11th. So September 11th happened and the CMJ showcase actually got pushed, but it still happened. So I went to that show and obviously my mom was like, this is fucked. Like you're so stupid. You know, she didn't want me to go, but she knows that how I am, I was going to go either way. So she's like, all right, like go for it. So, so I went and then, you know, that, that specific show changed my life in my opinion, because Sean was so built into hardcore. He knew everything about hardcore and a whole community of friends that were hardcore and he you know him and I started hanging out every weekend and and honestly like yeah so so Andrew was a junior when I met her and then she was a senior but by the end of senior year Andrew didn't give a shit about music anymore she was about to graduate and she was like trying to be trying to be a writer she had big dreams and you know by the end of senior year so I knew her for a year and we were, we were friends and she drove me to a ton of shows but by 
by the end of that senior year, 2000 and I guess one, she just was out. She didn't give a shit. She said, fuck this. Like it was fun when I was a kid, but I'm about to be an adult. I'm about to graduate high school. Like, you know, you know, and you have a good time with this bullshit while you can. And I always thought that was so fucking weird. I never talked to her again. Never heard from her again. She, she graduated and fucking disappeared. She has no Instagram, nothing like that. No clue. Just disappeared. Maybe she's a super adult. I mean, to be honest, I, I talked to two people that I, uh, that I went to high school with, like I see and talk to everyone else can literally go fuck themselves. I do. Not yeah. Usually when we are have guests on the show and they start talking about high school, one of the things I usually ask and you kind of alliterate it here is that there wasn't really a group of hardcore kids in your high school to kind of like congeal alongside and find hardcore with. So you're in this quasi world of sort of knowing people and going to these shows what comes next? I mean, you don't start, you're not, you were never in a ska band or anything like that, were you? Like you, no, you, no, no, no. you started going to like legit shows before anything else, right? Yeah, I guess more, more legit, but like not legit because I mean, we saw like they were small, like Sunday Drive. I'm trying to think, could we, I saw Sunday Drive or maybe I saw them right when they became the starting line and it was at like a shit shed in Philly. I don't even know what the fuck it was called. But it was like them, maybe Alistair. This is like before. Yeah, yeah, this is, a bunch of popular, these are popular these are all these are all bands, and this is what I've always said is that, you know, um, and just so people listening can kind of get why Greg's talking about this stuff is that there was a time where the bands that are obviously giant and making millions and fucking true rock stars all needed hardcore shows and hardcore promoters to kind of get them off the ground, including newfound glory. Then the list goes on and on. There's always been a place for these dumbass bands, be it new metal and pop punk in fucking hardcore shows. Cause hardcore shows are like the starting base for everything. Like we're the lowest, we're the lowest entry point. You have to just be a band and someone's going to fucking book you. And that's why Greg's talking about this shit because so often before there is a giant audience it's in these small halls where hardcore bands play where these little bands groom and build themselves up and you see this as far like you know maddie talked about it with harmony grange um definitely stuff in you know delaware pits all around here you're gonna see at this time frame the end of the 90s and the early 2000s these bands that'll go on to be fucking you know, giant names. Shit, even in the Zach Thorne episode, we were talking about Avenged Sevenfold playing with Shadow Realm and Punishment. These bands have always needed us to give them an audience before they would go on to be rock stars and pretend like they never played these shows. And that's why Greg's talking about this shit. Otherwise, we wouldn't even bother with it. Yeah, and, and honestly, this is what bridged my gap like between the, the world that I was kind of introduced to through my mentor in, in whatever, I think eighth, now that I'm thinking about it's probably in eighth grade because it was before high school and I was in eighth grade in 99 and that makes sense. So I, I was in eighth grade. I had the mentor in 99 and 2000, I met the girl, Andrea. And then 2001, I met the kid, Sean. And uh, I'm thinking about it. The kid, Sean, I remember was, was in, you know, I guess interested from me because I was talking about bands like Glass Show, but then I was bringing up bands like Shady View Terrace, which were like, I don't know, like an indie band from New Jersey that were, I don't know, like smaller, but, but cool. And he, that's kind of what I guess brought his interest to, to want to talk to me more and be like, Oh shit. So this guy's not just like 
caring about the bigger stuff and he's saying he likes Glassjaw and and to me what stuck out with Glassjaw specifically and I'll and I'll go back to this just because I think it's important is like you know when they would play the singer would have big X's on his hands his energy was off the wall and it was like it was it was I mean I don't know what you consider it now but I wouldn't even consider it hardcore Jason I would consider it hardcore in my opinion like because they were just there was a there was a clear clear line where they were like a band that was well within the hardcore scene. And I think what changes the story, not for to look at a band overall and go, Glassjaw was not a hardcore band. At the time that you're talking about them, they 100% were the same way AFI was, the yeah. same way so many bands were. And then, but what happens is people listening in 2021 are going to go, fuck are we talking about Glassjaw? Like they were sick of, you know what I mean? So yeah. like there's a, there's a reference point where, you have a really cool viewpoint of this band and um, dudes from Florida that we were friends with through trust. No one, they were involved with Cla uh, glass draw. Um, they were 100% tied in a hardcore scene, but at the same time in trying to figure out, it's interesting that this is where you're coming from. Are you, are you saying, I think, cause trust no one was affiliated with glass eater. Maybe that's it. Yeah, I cause remember the drummer, because I'm pretty sure the drummer of Trust No One sat, played drums and then went on to sing for Glass Eater, who was another band I toured with and were good friends with, and who Eric Cooper also toured with and was good friends with. And that's how I met Cooper. Yeah, see, that got switched up. I thought those dudes were that. Essentially, yeah, Glassjaw was a hardcore band at the time, but like, just even like the, the other New York hardcore bands, just about everybody who tastes a little bit of freedom. I guess this kind of goes on to say, like, it's why Code Orange is cool. It's why Turnstile is cool. It's why Trapped and Race is cool. It's why a lot of the bands in the modern frame, even Terror, Terror never changed who Terror was. And they play with giant crowds. Yeah. They never changed their tune of who they were or what they were playing for. They were just the band they are. And that, and that holds true to the bands that are really – uh, personifying hardcore at the highest level today is that they also aren't changing. But bands like Jack, Glassjaw and others, who I'll leave out because every time I say this, bands get upset by it, but it's like they saw the open door towards a bigger scene somewhere else and they took their sounds and they took their looks somewhere different. And I don't begrudge somebody for it, but when you start emulating like big rock ideas to bring your band to a different level, I usually check out. Very like you know like I don't give a fuck about anything after Ugly for Life of Agony, and I barely really love Ugly for the pur for the purposes that by the time they started shifting in that direction, I was on to other hardcore stuff. So I get I get what you're saying about the the visualization of Glassjaw. So you, what what comes next for you? So the kid Sean. I would go to my grandparents on the weekends and he would start picking me up and driving me around. And then he was good friends with this kid, Charlie Mecca. Charlie Mecca's mom, Sue Mecca, ran the M&M Hall in New Jersey, which was a, a small hall in Old Bridge, New Jersey, off Texas Road that did a lot, a lot of shows. Love um, that place. Yeah, Love it was, it. I mean. We spoke on it a couple episodes already. It's just like this cool little venue that, I wish there was more of them active now because I think it's like the perfect size for hardcore shows. And just like it, like I think even with GPS, it's a fucking weird to find that place. 
Oh yeah, it was it was super weird, but at the time it was right kind of around the corner from one of the bigger clubs, Birch Hill. So yeah, that was before that closed. And actually, that was talked about between you know the Zach episode, the Irate episode. Birch Hill was like this giant rock club with a huge stage, and the bouncers were renowned for getting too violent and us fucking them up. Yeah. But then literally, like he's saying, like three three New Jersey turns, and you're at this small little hall where so much crazy shit happened. And at the time, this is like 2000, 2001, you're talking about, correct? Yeah, exactly. So like 99, 2000, 2001, the place went from having a couple shows to some of the best shows in the area, period. Like Philly would come up, Long Island, IDS, Queens would come down, you know, All Out War came down, Sworn Enemy came down, uh, Somebody in the band trial got punched in the face there. Um, the band Archangel got attacked on stage there. That was like a legendary place for no, I think I think Archangel happened in Garfield, New Jersey. I, I think um, that was MM Hall. Was it at MM Hall? I thought it was MM Hall. I thought I, I was in I was in California when it happened. So everything that we was reading and being called and told. But I, I believe I thought it was MM because Jay Money hooked it up. Jay Money uh, had like booked like the three shows. Archangel had gone out and played a show, but I guess the, the, one of the guys weren't vegan. So yeah, a friend of ours from the New Jersey hardcore scene was holding up posters with their lyrics, calling them out on not being vegan, and a guitar player kicked the poster and then returned their internet fight. And they were uh, they weren't beat up, but a couple of them were slapped. And then they were ditched outside of the show they played in Philly the next day. And uh, because that night they went back and they destroyed the home of Jay Money, who passed away last summer. But he was the only one who brought them out and helped them out, and they ended up fucking him over. So in return, they were left in the middle of West Philadelphia to figure out how to get back to the airport and get out of here. And it was actually took. A, that's why they hadn't played anywhere in America because they're gonna get fucked up for that. And I mean, shit, that's just almost twenty years ago. So Eminem Hall was that where you first started seeing like the legit hardcore shit? So I, I had been there once before um, the Andrea girl brought me there to see Death by Stereo, who she really liked. I think I can't remember what the show was, but Death by Stereo 100% played it because I remember her. She was like really into it. And she's like, oh, you like, you know, crazier stuff. You'll like this. And I remember thinking it was so cool. So that, see, like there was a little like pieces in that year, 2000, 2001, where I did go and see like certain bands, but I guess like once once i met the sean kid he really was the one that like ramped it up and sean also did like something called street team so street team is basically when you hand out the flyers at the end of the show for the bigger clubs like birch hill or the other one was club benet or chrome whatever you know club benet turned into club chrome so sean was like a part of the street team and he would hand out the flyers so he kind of started bringing me to those like pretty much every show like he would drive me to every single show and he was also friends with the Charlie Mecca kid that was his mom was Sue Mecca that ran Eminem Hall. So I was going to at this point in 2001, I would say two to three shows a week easily between South Amboy, New Jersey, Old Bridge, New Jersey, because Old Bridge is where Birch Hill and Eminem Hall were. So I was literally going to multiple shows a week at this point. What was great about that time specifically was that the size of the menus New Jersey had and the central location from New Jersey, it was actually better to go to a New Jersey show, even though it was like a good 45 minutes to like an hour and a half drive to some of these shows. 
because the crowds were crazier and the club Benet slash club Chrome were able to get shows and that like would actually sort of skip in some of the Philly stuff because the time R5 Productions didn't, they had a venue, they had the first Unitarian Church, then they lost it. Then they had their own venue 4040, but they weren't getting every show. So we were also at the same time coming up there a lot. Yeah. Now, um, were you, because you had come kind of from the ska, glass jaw, whatever world, did you have your first, like, holy fuck hardcore moment? And which band was it? So so it was, it was at Eminem Hall. It was actually Shadow Realm. Um, the show was Caliban, Shadow Realm, Dead to Fall, A Life Once Lost. I'm trying to think who else played this show. It was a crazy show. And during Shadow Realm, I was like, getting getting brave and i was like all right i'm i'm gonna hit the pit so i go to start moshing and Stickman was there doing his crazy windmills and caught me in between his fist and one of the chairs that were on the side of the room and knocked me out cold so i woke up in the dirt lot outside an m&m hall and was like that from that point on it was like full speed ad for hard i loved hard like it, i mean i already already was really interested in it but i was like slow into it right i wasn't like going to the like the moshing part i didn't jump right into it i was very like you were slow. also i mean you're not a big guy now but like you were small then i mean i literally wore girls jeans 100 yeah. percent. i was small i wore a youth medium t-shirt and girls jeans uh, you're on some young bullshit <laughs> now uh did you ever travel up the co- to the cove which is like up like Roselle up in the north yeah, so Clark was Clark is right over there. That's like, yeah, I saw. Oh, yeah. all right, that's right. Yeah, because yeah, Clark's up on the Parkway. That's like north of the one thirty-five. Okay. The cove is one thirty-seven. Yeah, uh, I seen uh, Shadow Realm had played with like Redline and Bloodline, probably about fourteen million times at the Cove. It was like some mm-hmm. variation of that lineup, and there was this one set where uh, Stick got up on stage sang something with uh it was either you know what no it was uh when joe joe had had joe uh from second to none before he was in shadow realm second to none had released like some newer shit and stick did a guest vocal on it and i remember seeing stick do his line and then get off and literally i felt like he punched the entire crowd it was fucking just like one of these holy shit moments and i wonder you go from glass jaw and dashboard and starting line, and now you're dodging ninja kicks from Stickman and all these motherfuckers. And I could see, like, the lights going off. You're like, "Holy shit, this is crazy!" And there, I mean, there was smaller guy. I'm trying to think, like, what the fuck is his name? Like, uh, Locks. Locks was a smaller guy in New Jersey. And he would just literally punch everybody too. He was, it was whatever. But yeah, like Locks, Locks. One of the things I like about hardcore dancing is like you have one guy who has like a definitive mosh style, and then a smaller guy. Locks is like hum, human size is a better way to put it. Yeah. But Locks would take like the big Mark style, and just refine it to like a normal human size, and make it kind of even worse because he was able, you know, and like yeah, and like. Sean Edison was a little bit more of like a human size. He was a Mahar Masher. But I mean, I guess what we're talking about here is like, this is like night and day. 
as far as crowd activity and all this stuff. Yeah, and I and like I said, I kind of was like a slow roll, so I would go to the see the see some more aggressive bands, and I started going to more aggressive shows and go to the hardcore shows, and but I wasn't like jumping right in the pit, so so you know I'm I can't even remember when that Caliban Shadow Realm show was, but it might have even been it was probably 2001, I would assume, but so that 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 was like I don't know that show specifically. I remember being like I'm, and that was like a a thing. Like I found a video from a video I recorded and actually gave it to Sonny to, to upload during this quarantine stuff. And it was uh, Stillborn Fest 2001 in Long Island. And there's a bunch of B-roll footage of me and my friends filming me moshing in a parking lot, trying to get my courage up to, to mosh. Like it's, it's like, it sounds so pathetic and it, maybe, it, maybe it is, I don't know, but like, I, I'll be honest about it. <laughs> you know, there's, there's a bunch of B-roll footage that Sonny probably has on his computer of me fucking moshing in the park and be like, like yeah, when Hatebreed goes on, I'm 100% hitting the pit, being dead serious. <laughs> that, that tour was 2002 in July. Okay. Which makes sense because uh, Punishment was supposed to tour with Shattered Realm in 2002 in July but we had a major problem with our entire lineup. And I'm like, we're not fucking touring. So I think that they end up doing their own thing. And that was like the last tour that Eric Cooper was on was around that time. That makes so sense. I think, and I think that might've been their. That was actually, I think around the time, like their first full us was at that time too, in 2002. So that all adds up. So now looking at this now for people that don't realize this, and Greg illiterate something that we've talked a little bit about, like me, Chris and other people handing out flyers. There was a time when promoters and also there was this thing with you could get on the Victory Record Street team and the Trustkill Record Street team. And what would happen is they would mail shit directly to your house. And your job was to like physically put it in record stores, hand out flyers, and that might get you on the guest list specifically for a show if one of their bands was coming through. And pre-internet, that was a big part of marketing in the 2000s and the late 90s was depending on these kids like Sean and I guess later Greg and actually Rich Hall even actually talked about in his episode with helping out um, Tyler King. Where it comes into play is that that was the way the things got out there. You had some kids being like, hey, I don't know if you know this, I'm on the street team. And you're like, what the fuck does that mean? I give give out the flyers. And there were people that would like double down and like they were like on five or six street teams. And it was a cool way for them to kind of be involved, but also promote and kind of get their foot in the door. And that's what kind of we were talking about with this era. And that was Sean hundred percent. He was super dialed. And Sean's still a friend to this day. I mean, he took my wedding photos and, and I'm, I still speak to him and, and he's great, even though he, you know, stopped being straight edge and became a DJ at one point, which is fucking lame as shit. But like, I love Sean and I give him shit to his face. So yeah, don't fucking sell out straight edge and become a DJ. Cause that shit's fucking a joke. We know who you're, we know you're listening DJ Evan edge. We know. Now, what 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 do you think came first? Do you think wanting to be in a band came first, or were you were you getting down with friends who had small bands, or were you traveling with bands? Which part came first for you? I'm trying to so so I guess pushing the end of two thousand two, I became friends with Census Fail, and they were about they were being represented represented managed whatever whatever it is by heath miller 
who used to do the rec room and access DB and, you know, did all the shows at club Chrome club. Benet. Yeah. Yeah. He was also really involved at a big level in the Hellfest 2004 in New Jersey. Exactly. Yeah. He, uh, yes, 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 yes. Cause I, I actually worked Hellfest 2004 as a stage manager for the stage that Bad Luck 13 played on. It's all your and, fault. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. Okay. <laughs> so, so, okay. Yeah. So Heath was like a big, becoming like a bigger talent buyer or promoter, whatever you, whatever you'd want to call him. And, and it, Sean had introduced me to him in like 2001 and I started going to all the shows and I'd get in for free by handing out flyers. So, so being on the street team for the clubs is a little different. You showed up early, you set up the flyers, you handed out the flyers and you just got into all the shows for free. That's how it worked then, at least for, for Birchill and for Chrome. So when Heath was talking to them, I remember it. We went and had a dinner before a show at Chrome, which was in the small, it was, there's two rooms at Club Chrome. So there was a small room that did like, you know, 300 cap shows. And then there was a bigger room that did like, I guess a thousand cap shows. So this show was in the smaller room and it was Fairweather, who I was a huge fan of. They're on Equal Vision and I fucking love them. And then a band called Code 7, which I also really, really liked, which were both like hardcore adjacent, quote unquote. So we went and got this dinner and basically they're like, okay, we, we're, we signed to drive through records and, you know, we're, we just got confirmed for this tour. And I was like, okay. And, and, and Heath had known me enough to know, like I was skipping school and fucking hated my, I didn't, I didn't really have much of a home life. Like not that it was bad by any means, but I was, I don't know. I just was, I, I would be out as much as I could and stay out as much as I could. Like I wasn't really excited on being home. So they're like, you know, would you want to go? So this was like, okay. End of 2002 when, or yeah, it's probably like, October, November, 2002. All right. The guys are going on a tour in January, 2003. And the tour was Finch, the movie life, a static lullaby and census fell opening, which, which at that time Finch were massive. I mean, it was like a six, it was a six or seven week tour. Um, something I've never, you know, I couldn't believe it. And, and just to just to backtrack a little bit, and I fucking hate when I listen to your podcast and I hear people do this, but now that I'm remembering, I did go around with my friend's band, the Bank Robbers, a ton. They're like a local band. They're my buddies, and they brought me on a bunch of little weekends and week long tours. So I I really liked going on tour. I love traveling. So when when Heath had brought me in with Census Fell, who I was friends with, the singer Buddy, and him and I would see each other at shows, and like we were really like like we were really cool to one another he when he when they offered me this like seven week us tour i was like okay fuck it yes right then i'm just gonna tell my mom the day before we leave and peace the fuck out and they were like all right you figure it out because the drummer at that time was my age he was 16 so the drummer of census fell 16 he dropped out of school um one of the other guys might have been younger too like they were all like 18 to 16 to i guess like 19 at that point so similar age. Now I'm wondering how much did they think that you were going to be able to do on this tour or were you nervous to be on the tour or were you just like balls at the wall excited to just get the fuck out of New Jersey? So they, so they signed to a label. They, they were on drive through So like that was like the biggest label for their genre at that point. So it's like they had, they were bringing me to do merch and to help out. 
but they knew I couldn't even drive. I didn't have a license. So they, they, it wasn't like they were bringing me to be like, all right, you're going to help with the driving. They knew, all right, Greg's not fucking driving. So you better just do a good job with merch. And then they also had a guitar tech, this kid, Sean, who was like huge into punk. He loved like JFA, Dayglo Abortions. I mean, he knew he fucking loved punk and he was a really good guitar player and he was a guitar tech. And then they had this fucking somebody I hated. You know, on tour, there's a one guy you fucking can't stand. At least his every name, tour I do. His name was uh, Danny Cahill. Oh, come on. <laughs> I, I always loved Danny. Even though <laughs> no, I was terrible. Fun guy to tour. Fun guy sometimes, but that was the one guy like, uh, if I could just not have to deal with him every day. But alas, here we are. So, so this... <laughs> So, th- so this other guy was was that that guy pretty much. I couldn't fucking stand him. Him and I would get in huge debates in the van, in the van, like because I was like an excited straight edge hardcore kid, and he was like post punk. So he was like trying to get through his, or he he would claim he was punk, but he was a fucking poser. He was the definition of a poser because he was from a rich fucking family that would send him money every day and wipe his ass for him, and like he would just talk shit on everything. But then the best part about it is this same guy, like two years ago, he was at fucking back to school jam running a straight edge clothing company. And in my head, I was like, this is fucking full circle. This clown. What's the name of the, what's the name of the straight edge company? I honestly don't even remember. See, like a lot of people would be, a lot of bigger people would be like, you know, that's really good. He like turned himself around and he's doing really good. But for me, I was like, you fucking motherfucker. What the fuck? Like, oh, you're straight. I don't want you to be like me. I can't wait to get fucking sell out, you little bitch. Damn. See, I, I find that some people find little holes where they think their market is going to be. And stuff like that really aggravates me. So I, I'm with you. What were the... I, you know what, and I hate when people tell stories and they don't... They don't so this guy, his name was Itchy. He played drums in a band called Bed Light for Blue Eyes, which were also the biggest piece of garbage from New Jersey. I mean, the name sucks. Um, they're a literal shit in a fucking can. But yeah, I mean, I don't have any ill ill will towards him now. Like, I don't have any reason to. I haven't really spoke to him in a long time. But seeing him a couple of years ago, I was like, it, I would have appreciated if he was like, you know what? I used to talk a lot of shit to you and say how corny straight edge is. But man, you were right the whole time. I didn't even get that. At least if he would have been like, damn, man, I see you in your 30s and you're still doing the same thing you were doing when you were 15. I appreciate He didn't even give me that. He just acted like he didn't know who I was. I'm like, you fucking. Well, I think also some people really ban people, especially when they are at that level. Like, well, I'm on tour with so-and-so. They don't look at the little people. So where, you know, you're cognizant of all the people because this is like your first tour. It sounds like this guy was just being a fucking a complete dickhead and like, I'm too cool for you. But look where he's at now. He's at your fest selling his stupid t-shirts. Well, he was just a drum tech too. He wasn't even in the band. He was literally their drum tech. It was like, oh. it made zero sense. It was like, that okay. It actually makes all the sense. Now that <laughs> kind of feeds, fills in the gaps. What were the, what were the things that you think you learned the most that you would carry on with you from being on this tour? Always problem solve in real time. Like don't find issues and let them kind of like, resonate and and like and kind of just fall to the back burner until it's such a bad issue that you have to like 
really stop to and like kind of damage control like damage control along the way instead of like ignoring it until it's so bad and so built up that there's like a million things to have to deal with um give me an example of something that you uh were taught that kind of uh embedded that thought into your head Uh, so like this, this was like the biggest show of the tour. It was probably like 6,000 people. Um, it was a big, big show. I mean, a lot of these shows were thousands of people. It was like Finch was on their first record and it was, they were like blowing up and it was a lot of like Northwest, West coast, I think Midwest. Um, so this show, I was obviously selling the merch and I, I'm a diabetic, so I need to like be aware of you know what i'm doing and what i'm eating and and all these things so this show in the i should have eaten before the show and i should have made sense of it but i didn't and during the show when there's six thousand people or five thousand people whatever it was merch was insane census fell was a new band they just signed the drive-through so they were selling big big numbers like like still even to this day having done it for as long as i had whatever that was 2003 is january 2003 so what is it now? It's almost almost 20 years, 18 years. So for as long as I've done it, they were even at that time for, for my first full US tour, they were selling crazy numbers. And during the show, in the midst of all the chaos, my sugar went low. So I had to eat and I had to drink and I had to like figure out all these things when I'm like trying to like I knew I was a big boy and I knew I should have eaten, but for whatever reason I didn't, and I was probably just having fun being stupid on tour. But then here I am at the biggest show and I basically had to like step away for a minute to like figure it out. And, you know, when you're doing merch, wasn't as dialed in then I'd say like, or at least I wasn't as dialed in as my first tour. So I didn't have like Excel sheets that I was running and like, I wasn't a professional guy. Like I was just figuring it out along the way. And, and I always appreciate sense of self for that. Cause they never gave me a hard time ever. They brought me on tour throughout their career to this day. Like they bring me off and on. When I was doing Mongoloids, they bring me off and on. They, they helped me if I had off time, they're like, okay, we want you to come and do you want to do this tour? And they were always really good friends to me. And then I always appreciate that because I was fucking dumb. Like, I didn't know what the fuck was going on. I didn't know how to do an Excel show. I didn't know how to do anything. So they kind of also taught me, okay, this is how you count in. You know, this is how you count out. This is how you count in. This is how you use this Excel sheet. This is how you use this spreadsheet. They, they really kind of showed me a lot of that stuff. But, you know, that show, I ended up having to miss a good, I don't know, 10 to 20 minutes behind the table, which was, you know, equated to a lot of money, but they were understanding and cool. And, you know, if I would have paid attention a little bit more to, to what I knew about my own health, then I could have like avoided that whole situation to begin with. I think that's a really important lesson. It's something that we kind of, you've seen with me with this is hardcore. I am a perennial just overworker when it comes to moving. I can I can move for hours on end and forget to eat. Like I actually should have just forget to eat. Like just the nature of like when we pour concrete, you just move. You don't have time to stop and go, hey guys, I'm gonna let this concrete get hard. I'm gonna eat real quick. Like I, you know, have food in my hoodie or something. And I think that that kind of work, whether it's selling merch or running uh, the stage at a show, you're on for hours on end with very little downtime because there's always a problem to put out. There's always the, the thing going on that becomes precedent. And we sometimes forget to just take care of ourselves. Now, 
I imagine that it was a lot for you to go from being in the van with the bank robbers to being at the level that you were at with this tour. What were you dealing with? Just the whole exposure and access to a different level of playing field and leaving the East coast. And also for those listening, there were still no cell phones. There wasn't much of a GPS. A lot of this stuff is still all done very DIY, even at the high level, even at that high level, like it wasn't the way it is. And so, you know, you were sending postcards home to your mom, you were getting a call and car to call home, stuff like that was going on or how was it for you, your first touring experience? So there was no, there was no GPS. We used maps. We use like actual physical maps and Fuck like yeah. had to like talk to people if like, like the next show was coming up and we were confused about a route. We'd like actually lay it out before we went. There was select, some people had cell phones. I did not have a cell phone at that time. And I'm, I'm pretty sure maybe I did and I left it. So the night before the tour, we, when we left, I basically said, hey, mom, I'm, I'm doing this tour. Like I told you about it, like peace out. And, and she was like, you're not going on tour. I'm like, all right, see you in the morning. And then the morning came and I was out. Like they came and picked me up and I peaced out. And I kind of like told the band that, but didn't. Now, as we get further into the tour, my mom obviously knew that I was at Chrome a lot. And she knew she had an idea that this was something to do with Chrome. So I guess a week went by and my mom showed up to Chrome, like where the fuck's my son? Like she was calling the club, trying to figure it out. And then they were like, yeah, Greg's like on tour in fucking California right now. Like, I don't know. He didn't tell you. She's like, well, he told me, but I thought he was like fucking with me. Like, no, he left. He's like on tour. Like I didn't tell my high school. I didn't say shit. I was a junior in high school and I just dipped. So she basically got left with having to like damage control that situation. And I appreciate her and I love her for it because I really left her just, I kind of just knew if I made it too much of a thing, I would have bet I wouldn't, it would have been an argument. I didn't want to argue because I knew I was going to do it either way. So then back to this, back to what I was saying, I learned maybe a couple more weeks in, I ended up running out of insulin on the road. <laughs> so I had to basically finally get in touch with my mom to be like, hey, mom, hey, how are you? Can you give some insulin to Heath Miller, who's going to fly out to these big LA shows? And just so I have insulin on the road. She's like, you fucking little bastard. Like, you know, obviously I chewed my ear off. You know, I called her from, I think, someone else's cell phone. I think one person in the van had a cell phone at this point. So it was like, I used their phone. I was like, it's like, yeah, if you need me, like you can call me on this number, but just don't call me because I'm like out trying to like live my dream, mom. I'm just trying to live my fucking dream. Don't crush my dream. So, <laughs> so, uh, so she gave the insulin to Heath and then he came out. So that's another thing I should have planned. Like, but it was, it was the first time I ever did anything like this. It was like it, between weekends and a week, maybe like seven weeks on the road was way different and like, I mean, obviously, you know, when you do a U.S. tour, how many fucking crazy things happen that you have to, like, deal with in the moment? It's so much different than, like, a weekend away. When you got back, what was your thoughts going forward, knowing that this entire world at that level with touring existed? And what were you thinking? When I got back, I promised my mom I was going to graduate high school with my class. And even though I had missed all those weeks, so so I was thinking like I'm gonna keep my word on that because she really could have made it bad and like 
she could have in hindsight called the cops and done like really shitty stuff to to stop me from what I was doing but she didn't she obviously chewed my ear off and she but she did allow me to kind of like follow what I wanted to do and honestly like all of that stuff I do think helped me get to where I am right now and like that that tour specifically was such a game changer for me I mean I I was obsessed with the idea of touring and I I really wanted the tour but I also at that point started wanting to be like man one day I want to do a band and one day I want to be able to like write lyrics and be like the guy on stage yelling them and like be more a part of it because like that that level was cool but I just I it wasn't it wasn't the level it was just the, about being away from me it wasn't like I felt cooler because it was bigger shows or I felt more like a part of it like I don't, I don't know I, I just it, that wasn't like what sold me on it honestly because I would still go and do I mean like I said I did I did week-long tours and two weeks here and there I did one with Shadow Realm I went with Glass Eater I did a ton of shit with Glass Eater I mean those are my buddies from Florida they came and stayed at my mom's house for days and that's you know it was like well I guess I guess to keep your linear um in thinking about my own first tour was this in 99 I had the exact same thought like I gotta do this I gotta get a band. I gotta go on fucking tour. Like I, I gotta, I gotta get this. Like I want to, I want this so bad. Did you? Was your first steps towards that trying mongoloids, or did you have another band, or were you too busy doing production between the venue and touring to really get the band off the ground? I did a joke band in two thousand three. Uh, it was called Fright Fest. We played like two shows ever one of them was like a local show at the bank robbers just because it, it was literally it was a complete joke like we dressed up in costumes and what was your uh, costume oh god it was like a black robe like a magician's robe and uh what do you say you're a wizard pretty much yeah right, cool. <laughs> so and, and we did a, a local show at the bank robbers which was fun and you know stupid i fell off the stage and you know poured a bunch of water on myself and that was, you know, whatever, put the microphone through my fly of my pants and sang out of it. Like I thought I was being revolutionary, but I was just a fucking joke. But then we played another show, which was at Chrome with Converge, Sky Came Falling, Nora. Oh my God, who else? I don't even remember who else played it, but that was like, I remember doing that show and being like, like really into hardcore, like being with your friends and that like a local show was a little different because I didn't really care. And I remember doing that show and being like, after that show, just being super like, all right, I don't want to do Joe. This is fucking stupid. Like, it was fun. It was well, like, for those listening, Chrome is like a legitimate rock club. Yeah. Lights, stage, professional sound. This isn't a fucking hall. And these yeah. are like legitimate bands on like a real tour. So it was only through Heath or whatever that was like, yeah, yeah, you guys can play it. Exactly. Was yeah, he going so. through? Was he going through any of that pay-to-play stuff with the tickets for the opening bands that time? Or was oh, he? he always did. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah, I feel like punishment never had to worry about that with him. But I know that I had heard that with local bands, selling tickets was like a way. You Fright Fest didn't have to do that, did they? No, 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 no. No, he 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 did it to other to other bands and whatever. But like, and you know, I mean, you know, Heath and and I. Like Keith has honestly helped me save back to school jam in 2018. So like, even after all the, like when we moved from uh, game changer to, to white Eagle hall, 
um, yeah, 2018. So it's like Heath, I, I do have a, a certain loyal, loyalty to, but Heath is also Heath. So it's like he would never ask punishment to do it, even if you were a new band, even if you started a band today and asked them to play a show, you know, or in, in 2005, you started a band and you said, hey, Heath, we're going to play this show. Heath would put you on the show because you're you. Or if, you know, Shadow Realm hit him up and said, we're going to play this show. Heath would be like, okay, yeah, you're going to play this show. That's a great idea. But then if another band hit him up and said, hey, we're going to play this show, like, ah, bah, I mean, he gives respect to the people he has to give respect to and avoids giving respect to other people. But, but you know, that's neither here. That's a lot of people, honestly. I think that, I think that he did, and, 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 and this is like the old Joe look, we don't realize the work that takes to hold a calendar of a big club, promote, manage, constantly be finding talent that would be good for the location and bring people in. And the hardcore ideal is like, you didn't hook up my friend's band, even though they're probably going to draw the same five people that were coming where they play or not. And there's always this diversion of reality where it's like, this guy's an asshole because he won't book us. Is he an asshole because he won't book us? Or is he being fair to what he has to run a business? And something that I've now looked back on in the way that I've kind of looked at people one way and then be like, oh yeah, probably was smarter that we weren't on the show because there was always chaos when we would play. So I, I can I can relate to what you're saying, and I actually I don't have any communication with Heath because we don't really work like that on that level with him. But he 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 worked his way up through the ropes. I think he's like a Live Nation dude, something now, right, or something like that. I actually heard the other day from from a mutual friend that he moved to Argentina and is doing some like charity work out there because so he that's, was that's like some next level shit. It's it's real next level. Like I didn't even understand what it was because well, I think fr- previously he was like working at a high end on the industry. And for those listening while we're talking about him, he came up, man. Like you know, like he came up. He came up from very small shows to running clubs. He was even involved in New York running like whatever venue was the place where BNB was holding BNB the last couple of times. Webster, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like he were he rose through the ranks of New Jersey to run Webster Hall in New York City. He's an accomplished talent booker and show promoter. So. You know, got to give Keith Miller his props on that one. Now, so what did you do? Did you go, fuck, I want to start a real band? What was like the step after you embarrassed yourself in front of Converge? Um, That's probably 2003. I mean, I wanted to, but honestly, I was still like, because I the high school stuff was like a pretty big mess after I had done that tour. Like I came back and basically they, they didn't put me through summer school but they basically made me go to an alternative schooling, which was basically with like criminals and drug addicts and crazy shit. So I, I had to finish 11th grade and do the start of 12th grade in an alternative school that was like barbed wire fence opened up and it was fucked. Like it was real, real bad. Like dudes trying to buy like weird people trying to buy my insulin off me to like I don't know what the fuck they're going to do with it. Just strain, like buy syringes save, off. Save it till 2020 when it's worth $14 million for an ounce. Exactly. But that's, so it was, it was, it was crazy. So I, I ended up going to the school that was like an hour for my house. And this like mini bus, you know, the small yellow school bus that you see. And that was, that was me on that bus going like 45 to an hour to school every morning and every afternoon coming home and, I just kept my head down and got through it because it was like, okay, I told my mom I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. 
And, and that's just it. But I was so, but in this time, I was also going to so many shows still with Sean that I was like, all right, whatever. I mean, I just, I don't think I even really did any other touring then, like until I graduated high school. Maybe I did like weekends and stuff here and there. Like I think the, the, the class heater, I think was like in 2003, maybe at the end. Shadow Realm weekends, I always did those. And those were, were you know, all kind of chaos. All, and... Yeah, chaos. I mean, because I mean, well, no, no, like, like the those New Jersey, I guess, tech tech crew I met through having a camera, which I gave those tapes to Sonny and he's been uploading them. But like, you know, I, I would bring this this camera to shows and film. And then I think at some point, maybe Heath, maybe Shadow Realm was looking to get tapes for a eulogy DVD. And I was like, as I fuck it, I'll I'm I'm I'll bring my camera and film. And then that was maybe my like intro to like actually talking to them. I mean, again, at this point I was wearing girls jeans and youth medium and youth large t-shirts. So like <laughs> I was, I was probably getting made fun of to the highest regard, but they wanted somebody to film their shit. And then I was doing it. And then that's, I think was the intro to like becoming friends with all of New Jersey's hoodlums. I mean, I know also while you were like in that world, you, you were still evolved to some degree with like, the, the smaller shore show shows that were happening here and there like you were always around them as well so like there seems to be oh, like a, what's that i you're talking about the righteous jam show right yeah that came up later on but i'm saying like in general is you were sort of ubiquitous at that time like if there's shows you were there because i remember as blacklisted started playing and coming out like to new jersey we would go out and you would be there you know and that was that was early on and you were, you were a face in New Jersey in a couple different levels. And um, it's one of the things that I said in the beginning, like you were sort of ubiquitous at that time, you know, where we could see you in Philly, we could see you in New Jersey, any number of fucking shows. And it discount the fact that you're that young because a lot of people were young, but like now, like hearing your story, like you were still in fucking high school when we met you. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. So like I, I wanted to try everything. I wanted to be in a band. I wanted to promote shows. I wanted to try and do it all. And like the, the show show wise, obviously I knew Charlie Mecca through Sean and Charlie Mecca's mom, Sue ran M&M Hall. So she was like, Oh, do you want to try and do a show? And I was like, yeah, I want to try and do a show. So this was, that was probably like 2002. And I booked a show at M&M Hall and she was super cool. And I don't even know if I paid for the hall. I have no idea how it worked, but I booked this show and it was, uh, I remember I got a hold of this band called The Prize Fight and The Prize Fight were from Long Island and it was the original singer at Taken Back Sunday. So I booked The Prize Fight, which were like this like poppy-ish band, or I guess like like a melodic or, or whatever. But then on that show, I also put like, oh my God, uh, Arson. I don't know. You remember Arson from New Jersey? I remember it, yeah. So Arson was on it. Um, this other band, Mora Insomnia, was on it. I think they ended up getting beat up by Shadow Realm at some point for talking a bunch of shit. Um, Bodies in the Gears of the Apparatus, which was this kid, Josh, that was, I don't know. So there was just this random show I booked, and there was probably like 20 to 30 people there. And it was, but it was, I was so excited about that. Like, I thought it was, I was like, I was like yeah, I, I booked this show. It was sick. 
Like I, you know, I got the emails, I got numbers and, and I put the whole thing together and like that, that was really like a huge high point for me booking, putting together my first show, my first live event. I'm like, this is, man, I fucking killed it. It wasn't even about how many people were there. I agree. I think some people hold a higher bar than they should for their first anything. And um, where did you, did you have now, sometimes promoters have this one thing where they either like immediately go to the show where they bite off more than they can chew on their next adventure or immediately they're swamped by people being like, Hey, you're a new guy. Can you get us a show? Like how did, which, which road did you end up taking after your first show? I honestly think I didn't do anything else for like a year or two. Okay. And then I, and then I started doing in like 2004 again, probably two years on it. That was 2002. And then 2004 again, I started like finding halls and doing like that righteous jam show at the shore and trying to think other crap I did. We did iron age bitter end in at the shore as well. Oh, yeah, that, that, that comes later on though. That's like, was yeah, so the, yeah, like Oh four at that time. You were still doing some production work, right? Well, as well. I was I was still doing like street team stuff, and I got because I didn't tour again with Censusville probably until like two thousand and six ish. Like I kind of was like after doing that that stunt during high school, like my life pretty much went back to just going to high school and trying to get through it to graduate with my class, and then just going to going to see you know live shows as as frequently as i could which brought me to philly a ton brought me to you know new york connecticut boston sometimes and like you know in that time i guess towards 2004 you know 2004 2003 you know other bands were coming out like nothing left to mourn which i was a massive supporter of and i went to all their shows driving to brockton driving to new york wherever they played you know yeah, so I was more into just supporting and going to see shows rather than trying to do like production and even book my own shows. I mean, I guess I started booking again in like 2004, 2005. Well, I think a lot changed around that time too because Club Chrome closed certain sort of around that time, right? And then mm-hmm. they the shows started happening at the the Starland. Yeah, I guess 2005, maybe 2005 that happened. I don't know. Let's yeah, see. I remember. I remember specifically that Hellfest 2005 went to Starland, and I remember 2004 we started having uh, shows up at the Cricket Club that oh, would have been at the would have that would have been at Chrome. So, you know, uh, and I remember we had a wild ass fight at Chrome in 2004. So I always assumed the end of 2004 was kind of like the end of Chrome and the beginning of us going cricket club. And then the tours that were hitting Chrome would start hitting Starland and Starland was a shitty venue because there was like rock star level club bouncers that just hated hardcore boxing. And there was tons of fights and cricket club was the opposite. It was a shitty club in a very hood neighborhood where like, if you didn't park your car in their back alley, you had a pretty good chance of getting robbed by gunpoint to the point where multiple people had been robbed by gunpoint within a block of the show. And yeah, that people would, people would walk to the pizza place at the corner. And get robbed. And, and literally get robbed. It was like, it wasn't even like one or two people, dozens of people. You'd walk and get a slice of pizza, come back, get robbed. It was just a part of each and every show. Yeah, like that was the first thing, like, look, you're going to get robbed. And 
uh, what was crazy is the cricket club was around as far back as the early 90s. So someone had found that place, which is actually interesting because if you drive up north on the parkway, you could see it from the parkway before the Irvington exit. 144, so, yeah. You see it right you off. Could, you could see people like having to resurrect old spots because Chrome kind of fell apart. Now, uh, and just What's that? So I say, just to speak on that, Obsessions also in Randolph, New Jersey, opened back up and they were doing hardcore shows again because Bane Comeback Kid, I remember, played at Obsessions in like 2006 or seven. I've never been to Obsessions in the GPS era. So okay. I just, I've seen shows marked, like marked up there, like, oh yeah. And that place in Clifton started doing shows, Dingbats or one of them oh, places. Man, yeah. Yeah, because we went up to the uh, one, for, they had like a one for one reunion or something, and we were up at that show. So it was like New Jersey, <coughs> excuse me, New Jersey had a weird kind of window where they went from being the central place where so many people were traveling to, which is actually what attracted Hellfest Keith to bring Keith Lincoln up with Heath to bring Hellfest to 2004, New Jersey because it was such a fucking central location and the shows were so big, I think people take for granted just how big those shows were in comparison to some of the places outside of New Jersey. That was a high, I always put 2004 as a high watermark for hardcore shows in New Jersey. And I think a lot of things kind of went the other way after that. And I wanted your ideas and thoughts on it. Yeah. I mean, it was like, I mean, I don't know. I think the bigger shows were bigger, but then like everything else was very like typical, honestly. Like, well, what I'm saying is, is like in 2004, Terror could play in front of a fucking packed club big room. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, that was like a packed big room show. And like, Manball did their return shows in early 2005. Oh, just. Because when, when, because no, it wasn't five, it was three. 2003, they were did it. That was that weekend where they did Chrome and DC, and like Manball came back and they had the fucking, they had, it was actually, no, no, it wasn't, it would have been four. You know, it was, it was 2004, 2005. I'll have to look it up. But Manball headlined a fucking packed club Chrome on like a, a Friday night and that Sunday we all went to DC and for one of the coolest shows which was like Mad Ball, Blood for Blood Death Threat and Striking Distance and like that was a high watermark for that like standard down the middle not too much metal in the core hardcore and and Club Chrome had a big part in that but the wings of change were coming Blacklist it was a thing uh, you know Trash Talk was becoming a thing Iron Age was becoming a thing, Righteous Jams was becoming a thing, like all these bands, Cold World, this new wave started coming. And I and I feel like at the end of the summer of 2004 with Hellfest fucking up New Jersey, Bad Luck 13 set, by the end of the summer, I don't I don't even think there was another, I don't think there was any more MMM Hall. I don't think there was a bunch of these places. So then you like everything got reestablished in these other spots. Yeah, I mean, because everything kind of went in the same year, for sure. Chrome, I think, lasted a little bit longer, but Eminem Hall and Birch Hill both got, got, uh, went away. And then, yeah, Chrome, I think, maybe lasted a year after that, and then that also went away. And, like, Chrome, obviously, and Birch Hill, honestly, they both had two rooms, 
So you could bring on a lot of shows to that when you have a 300 capacity room and then a, let's say a thousand or 1200 capacity room, you have a lot of options to bring on smaller tours, bigger tours, whatever it is. So with losing all that, yeah, I think it was like completely, honestly, when all that stuff went away is probably when I got back into wanting to book shows again and wanting to bring bands to, to New Jersey. And, and in that same breath, that's, that's also when I was a little bit more proactive in trying to start a band. Cause I was like, man, there's no straight edge bands right now. There's no, no one's even talking about straight edge. What the fuck is this? How's nobody straight? Like when I first started going to shows in 2001 or 2000, 2001, everyone was straight edge. Then I seen that first wave of kids move to New Brunswick and then from New Brunswick moved to Brooklyn and then everybody fucking lost their edge. And I was like, how is that even possible? Like it was the first, it was the first time I saw all these kids just start breaking edge. And to me, I was like, so angry about it. even though looking back it's like i have no who gives a shit what these idiots do it had nothing to do with me but for me i was like how could they fucking betray the oath they took and sometimes i still i still might think that way i won't admit yes or no but you know i don't know you know it's just strange um that's why i brought you that's why i brought it to that point because i remember there was a change of guard for me, I think of the shows and you brought up uh, New Brunswick, you know, uh, there was a time when like Strike Distance was playing to like 25 or maybe 50 people at that small venue. But then like, you know, Horror Show and all these bands were starting to come through and really started stepping up and the second wave hit at the end of American Nightmare kind of going from being like the biggest thing. It was these other bands that brought in a different atmosphere of hardcore. And that's where you kind of start getting your foot into the ground. Now, what was cool is, is you're doing your own shows, but you're still going out on weekends with us. And this is when I was in Shadow Realm and we're taking fucking crazy trips and getting into some fucking bullshit. Yeah. And um, how did you manage it all? Like to go from starting your band, starting to find the venues, and then also balancing the rest of your time with either traveling with Shadow Realm or still doing production work for other bands. Production work, I honestly really took a took a step, like a step back from. I did like I'm still doing the street team stuff, and I, I did that up until pretty much the end of all these places. Um, 2004, I did stage manage the the stage at Hellfest that uh, that Battle of 13 played on, and and I did like technically work, but I remember that because at the end when all hell broke loose and we did like the the rap meeting to end the weekend or whatever because Bad Luck played on the Sunday. I remember going to the office and, and Keith, Keith from, uh, hell, from Hellfest hell. just started hell. fucking screaming at me. And at that point I was, I was literally 18 years well, old. Let's, let's, let's dial this deck. So they put you on the stage to manage the times, but no one had control specifically, specifically of what was going to take place. And I think it's fair to say that you, you knew what you, they should have known what they were walking into when they asked for when they asked for bad luck to play and and but but on on i guess on their side i also didn't give a shit like i was there for the show and like i would i would help sure but like when death threat was playing the main stage when shadow realm was playing the main stage when the banner was playing the main stage i was at the main stage moshing so it's like the the stage was doing what it was doing the one i was supposed to be working but i really truly did not give a shit because they they needed somebody to fill a spot and i was like Fucking, I'll, I'll help and I'll do it. Sure, 
and and Heath was, you know, obviously Heath Heath from XSDB did a lot for me, and I was like, yeah, I'm down. But at that same breath, I was also so obsessed with hardcore at that point. I was like, yeah, there's no way in hell I'm missing Shadow Realm set at Hellfest, or I'm missing Death Threat set at Hellfest. Like, I'll go over there and and I'll play the part. And they, I guess, had people were reporting me. I guess fucking snitches were going back and being like, the stage manager sucks, which I 100% sucked. So then. I, all that on top of the bad luck stuff they went fucking ballistic and i was just like it's like I, I don't even remember what i said i think i called him an old loser and left and then heath was like laughing after the fact because he's like that was fucked up like you just called this dude an old loser and left but was it fucked up or i mean or at least you're being honest oh no i i don't give a shit i wouldn't have done it differently maybe i would have said no honestly because because i was also a kid and they were like hey do you want to make $200 a day by stage managing. And I was like, Ooh, I can make $200 a day by stage managing and also mosh the death threat. Let's do it. So then, so then like, I don't even remember what happened. They probably cut my pay. I remember I got paid still, but maybe they, they chopped it in half or something. And I was still like, I got paid $300 to mosh shadow realm. Fuck it. Now something that maybe you're not privy to, but something that I've always thought happened, but wasn't totally sure on from my, I was asked to play in shadow realm at the, end of 2003 and turned it down because they needed someone to sing in Europe and I just got back from a bad punishment tour and was trying to get things together so when they asked me when I was on a punishment tour to do it in 2004 I said yes and they were like you know we'll probably have you play Hellfest but then they're like yo we Paul, we promised Paul Brown that we're gonna have you play Hell he can do Hellfest I'm like that's fine I don't care but I remember a lot of bands saying they either got paid a hundred to one hundred and fifty dollars, or all the dudes in the band got in for free for the weekend. <laughs> and so, to me, like thinking about the amount of humans, like there had to be now. Now, this is me just asking. Do you remember if it was like two or three thousand, or was like like there was a lot of fucking people there? No, but, it's more than there was, but that's the thing is like I can only tell you from like whatever I was at that stage. Like it looked like the biggest stages was like two or three thousand, and then like hockey things. But it had to be way more than that overall, right? Yeah, it was that. It had to have been past five thousand. I even that's say. what I heard over five thousand. But again, like you know, uh, Friday night I saw the headlining sick of it all set. I thought it was the best. It's actually the last holy fuck sick of it all set I've seen. Was at that like Jesus Christ level for them? Yeah. And um, I remember at um during the E Town set, I felt like there was like two or three thousand just in that thing. But there were so many stages I couldn't track. So ultimately. To me, they got a fucking bargain paying you two hundred dollars for a day to run a damn stage when they had like so many things going on. Oh, a hundred percent. It's like I I also remember some of the booking because Heath did it with Keith, and I was around Heath a bunch. So I remember like he was managing a band. Oh my god, I think they were called Halifax. They were like a newer drive through records band. They're a pop. They're a pop band. So they literally played Hellfest. And I'm pretty sure he like finagled them to get paid a big, big check because they were like, quote unquote, blowing up. But I remember there was definitely like, like bands definitely got paid. I don't know like what the breakdown was or how it looked on paper, but I do remember like small conversations of like, okay, this band that, you know, I manage Halifax is going to play and I'm going to make sure they get a big fat check. Now you talked on some stuff about the management side of things that was uh, involved in Heath. But not to backtrack, but kind of like zero in on some of the stuff that you were kind of learning at this time. How much access and exposure did you have 
through Heath or any situation towards some of the stuff with management, uh, talent handling, and uh, like walk me through as of what you started with and what you were gleaning up until right now. So people can kind of catch up on everything that you were learning. I mean, honestly, I didn't have a lot of access to it, like at all, to be honest, like, you know, I would be around conversations and hear, but like, you know, that was in 2000 and that was, two, was 2000, 2005, I guess, or 2004, 2006. And then, you know, I guess I was more like, I mean, I, I went right into, I went into doing Mongoloids and then it was like full speed ahead with that. The management stuff, honestly, like, I think I was, the touring stuff came first. Well, let's, let's leave it at that. So, so I was, I, I was touring on and off with, with census fail and they always took care of me and made sure I was good. And if I was available, I would go do tours with them. And I'd, you know, they would pay me as, as part of their crew and they would take really good care of me. I mean, they, they always did for, for, I mean, I did a tour with them a few years ago before I, I dove more into the management stuff, but 2014, 2013, I, when I'm, I, I was more interested. Fuck man. I'm really shitty at telling the story right now. Sorry. But honestly, Joe, you probably lit the flame under me. Uh, you, I would say you were a big contributor to it because I had met a girl in England who's now my wife, Natalie, and I was doing the band and I was really obsessed with the band, but you over the last few, over the last years of the band were always like, Greg, what the fuck are you doing? Like, you're a loser. Like figure your shit out. Why are you still doing this? Like, it's a piece of shit, Greg. Like you were always on me about it. But then once I met Natalie, I remember you were very mad about it. Cause you're like, what the fuck are you doing? Now you're going to date a girl in England when you're doing a piece of shit band that no one gives a fuck about. And like, what is your, what's your, what's your, like your end goal here? You look like an idiot. And I remember that specifically, I was like, this dude is right. I need to pull away and like, like restructure. And at that point we weren't close at all. I mean, we didn't talk and I mean, it was, it was, it was bad blood. I'd say, I mean, I didn't really like, you just had an issue with it. And I was like, all right, well, fucking Joe's not going to tell me what to do. So if he's not going to talk to me, fuck it. And like, I went from doing stage managing and this is hardcore to being like, Oh, Joe don't want me to stage manage. I'm just going to buy a ticket. What's up now I'm going to be here because I'm going to fucking go to the show and I'm going to see the bands and I'm not going to feel like that I can't. And like, and that was probably never your, it was never your intention, but like, I know you had a lot to say about me at that point. And I was like, I'm going to prove this motherfucker wrong right now. So that kind of brings me to 2013 when it was like, okay, this band's going to be done. I need to like grow up. And literally like over that year, we played a bunch of last shows and did a last tour and then went to Europe one last time. And, the last show was in August of 2014. Now, the first week of September 2014, Census Fell was doing a tour. So the, the, the band wrapped. And then from that, I jumped right into a Census Fell tour, which was like a seven-week tour. So I was like, okay, band's done. See you later. Now it's time to do this tour again and really get back on. I'm going to ride with Census Fell, like, and I'm going to do all the touring now because it's like, I'm, a, I'm just going to stay with them and be like their consistent guy. Nat was in England. My wife, Natalie, was in England because she was like waiting on immigration stuff. And we, were, we had an immigration lawyer working on it. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to focus on working for the next six to 12 months. 
So I did the census fail tour and came back. And at that point, there was a small club called Game Changer World, which I was booking some, it was a, it was, it was a bigger club, it was like a thousand capacity room. And I booked some shows there. So I was like, I also like had a spot on their calendar. So when I had come back from, from that census fail tour in like October, 2014, I went to Game Changer, which was pretty close to my house. And I was trying to figure out calendar stuff and getting some holds for shows I wanted to do. And that is where I was introduced to like the social media stuff. Um, there was something called MadCon, which was like a, it was basically a convention of like different digital creators that are on YouTube or on Instagram or Twitter or, or wherever they are. And they all get together and do like meet and greets and put on a little performance for the, for the, for the fans, which are typically like 12 to 16 year old girls. So that introduced me because he, he, there was a kid there that the owner of Game Changer was going to sign. And I met the kid and we basically came up that same day I met him with the idea of, okay, we're going to start calling places and putting together a tour that you're going to go to different establishments, whether it's a trampoline park, a bowling alley, a roller skate ring, wherever the hell you're going to go. And we're going to book an eight week tour across the States from the end of October to, to the beginning of December. And you're going to just do meet and greets across the states and they're going to be a $20 meet and greet which is basically like a way less than anyone was charging so in that space everyone was charging like I don't know that like, I don't know a couple hundred bucks for a meet and greet we're like all right we're gonna we're gonna basically undercut all of them and do a $20 meet and greet so for me I was so excited because like you know this is this is like using you know heart more more of like what I've learned from hardcore and what I've learned from doing all this shit myself I'm just gonna start call, cold calling places and booking an entire tour and we, we did, we routed in, in 10 days, we routed an eight week tour, a meet and greet tour across the States, whether it was in a roller skate ring or a hotel lobby or whatever the hell we were booking and, and went out two weeks later. So booked it in 10 days. Honestly, we were still filling some dates at the end of when we hit the road. So we were on the road and I was still on calls. Like the kid, the talent bought a $20,000 RV and we did it, me, the talent, and me, the talent, and, and the talent's friends is how we started it. But it ended up growing to be so big during this run that we ended up bringing the talent's brother on to help us with merchandise. And Because I was literally taking the money out the door because it was cash only 20 bucks. So I was collecting the money, selling the merchandise, and helping with taking the photos. And, there, and some of these events would have a thousand people at it. So it was like, yeah, it was, it was really a lot for one person to handle. And we just literally figured it out as we went. Cause we we're like, okay, we see this opportunity. This kid just got off a tour that did, you know, a thousand people in every state it sold out. And he doesn't want to sit his ass at home. He was in New Jersey. The guy, John, that ran Game Changer World was trying to sign him as management. And I was just like, yeah, I'll, I'll, I just got back from tour, but I'll go on tour right now. My wife, my wife, my future wife is in England. She can't come here. So fuck it, let's go. And then that honestly opened like a huge world to me because it introduced me to something that I wasn't familiar with that I definitely could help with a lot. But then in the same take, like on that tour, the town ended up getting in a huge fight with John, the guy that was trying to manage him. 
and was basically like, all right, fuck John, he's done. And I was like in this strange position where I was like, okay, so what the fuck do I do? And I was on the road with them. And honestly, I didn't have anything to do with any of those conversations. Like I didn't know what the conversation was between the talent and John. So I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to do the tour and, and see it to the end. And then by the end of the tour, the kid and John didn't even talk anymore. And John was like, figure it out yourself to me. And I was like, all right, I'll just figure it out. And then the end of the tour, the kid was like, Hey, would you want to run my email? And basically like coordinate opportunity through the email. And I was like, yeah, fuck it. Sure. Now let's break some of this down because you kind of, you kind of yada yada some things that I think are important to kind of dissect. What Greg's talking about is like a person who's performing music and stuff that's different outside the hardcore world. John is someone who had come from the live nation world and opened up game changer as an independent owner operator with the idea to give a place for upcoming artists. And also that's something that happens a lot is when people who are very established in music industry realize a lot of the times when the bands get to the level where they're playing the big venues, there's already people encamped working on the band and already kind of like in the whole establishment of the band's hierarchy and management. So I've seen a lot of people in the music industry go to the below, like we talked about earlier, the lowest base you can go is like a small venue and even a thousand cap room. I mean, that was in Howell, New Jersey, right off of uh, was at route nine, Yep. you know, considerably by industry standards, like a smaller of the big clubs, you know, mm-hmm. and that gave him the outlet to like kind of see bands as they were coming up. Now, Game Changer was something that would eventually give us a lot of newer bands that we're talking about now, like our boys and shackled, etc. And that was like the venue there. Greg had been touring as Mongoloids for a long time. And we could do an entire fucking podcast just about the Mongoloids. And you've done podcasts about Mongoloids. Yeah. But for me, it's not what the band is up to that I look at. I always look at what the person in the band is doing. Greg had been someone who had been on weekend tours with Shattered Realm, had definitely come in to help This Is Hardcore at various times when I needed someone to be on stage so I could be other places. But you look at, I look at the talent of someone and I look at the possible scenarios where hardcore people, like I, I had on this podcast, and that's why Greg is here, have so much to offer and be so much more, but they get in this cyclical next tour, next record, next tour, next record, next tour, next record. And I I saw, maybe I saw potential in your fucking chaotic world. Like you were engaged. You were, and you know, just all the way back to your census fail thing, you know, you alliterated already. So for me, I just saw you as being someone who could be more than what you were. And, you know, mongoloids is what it was, you know? And and I think a lot of times hardcore people are, are afraid to say hardcore bands have a threshold. I saw you at your threshold. I wanted to see you do more. Natalie, just like you, had also been in a Shattered Realm van as a young person touring with us. I, I love her to death. She's a friend that I, I, I made, you know, holy shit, um, like 16 years ago, 17 years ago, and still my friend. I wanted you to realize, like, yo, you're going to get married. You got to fucking provide. You got to do something. And Mongoloids towards ain't going to do it. So I am very hard and direct to my friends. I, I yeah. cut out the flowery words. I don't have time for it. I'll tell you your fucking band sucks. I'll tell you you're wasting your fucking time. But it's because I have love for the person. And, and I saw something in you, man. 
And I don't, I pour concrete for a living. It's the steady Eddie. It's what I do. I'm not upset. I'm not going to quarterback and say, I could have made this change and been this guy. That's not my world. I'm happy with what I have. But you were happy in the production side. You were happy in the management shit in the sense that you were always engaged in knowing what bands are getting this. You know, you had a really ear to the ground of what was going on and you were already being inoculated into the industry side of things. So for me, I just didn't want to see you spin, spin your wheels in the mud chasing down another lineup to do Mongoloids tour, to do another record, to do another tour. And so I, I won't take credit for anything that went to motivate you. I just didn't want to see you spin your wheels, man. And I, I probably said it in the hardest, hardest, harshest tones possible because sometimes people are flowery and there's nuances there. There's no nuance. Stop <clears throat> doing the fucking band. Get your shit together. You're going to be married. Do something good for this girl. And, 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 what I really didn't expect because who the fuck knew that game changer world would be this access and exposure to you for this whole other thing. So going into what Greg was doing, Greg is now handling talent that is beyond just the hardcore world. Sometimes it's, I hate the word, I guess I'm going to use the word, but it sounds weird, but like child performers, people who are like under the age of 18 who are performing for a crowd whose parents are still somewhat involved in their everyday life, but they need management, they need day-to-day providers. But these are big, I mean, they're big financial volume sellers, way more than our biggest hardcore bands at times. And this access all starts by just jumping back into the hardcore thing with just like you want to do shows and you having your first best for back to school jam which we'll talk about briefly shortly. And it turned into this, holy fuck, here's this world and opportunity where I can have a living. I could never assume that's what you were going to get into, but I am very happy and I'm super proud that you took all the years of problem solving, whether it was selling merch with census fail, doing mongoloids tours. And, you know, just to cut out all the mongoloids talk pretty quickly is Greg booked, did all the band management, handled so many aspects of the band it's literally like taking a car building it from scratch and then taking it apart and rebuilding it so many times that you know the ins and out through mongoloids that was your in and out that was your that was your that was your that was your college that was your phd and how to run a touring band and a moving band or am i wrong there I mean, 100%. I mean, Mongoloids, Mongoloids, I would say, was done out of spite, to be honest with you. Like, we were like, all right, we're like, we started a band to be a band, and then it continued just because, like, it just felt like nobody wanted us to continue. And that to me, I took and was like, it's like, all right, well, I'm just going to keep it rolling. And, you know, the initial lineup f- fell apart into the original guitar player quit in 2008, and then the, the rest of the lineup just decomposed in 2009. Um, from just a multitude of things, including, you know, things I did wrong and just, just overall, it just fell apart. And from 2009, 2014, I literally kept it going out of spite. Everyone said, fucking let it go. And I was like, yeah, I'm just not letting go. I was obsessed with it. hundred percent. It was a, it was like a dream of mine to even do it. Well, I also think and something that needs to be said is like our, our differences in far as like contacts and stuff is that you see things that I didn't see. I was off the road and doing different shit by 2010. So 
in eight, nine, and 10, you really were a constant face in the American hardcore scene playing East coast to West coast, Sound of furious, you know, you guys played, you played everything, you know, like you guys played every fest. And so you became a contemporary figure within us hardcore. And that gave you a lot of things that would carry on to make back to school jam, what it is and what you still do now. But that being said, there's a, there's a ceiling to what you can profit and live off of in that world. But the experience is really the stuff that's the, that became like the gold mine here because here you are. What's that? I was just saying, just to touch on back to school jam, that's another thing that kind of came about because of Joe hardcore. Cause originally what was supposed to happen was Mongols were going to play. This is hardcore 2014. That was going to be the last show. Then this is going to be an actual point of contention, but I'll let you say your, your thing first. Then something happened and I guess there was like, I'll a tell you, I could tell you right off the bat, but I'll let you say it your way and then I'll say it my way. And then we'll let the, we'll let the court of a public opinion decide. <laughs> then, cause this was when Joe wasn't really talking to me, but Wolf Bailey was talking to Joe. And I guess like there was just a bunch of miscommunications and, and it ended up as Stigmata doesn't have a drummer, but Colin Young is going to play drums fuck you, you're out. <laughs> so, so I guess you got stigmata with Colin Young and the Mongols got bounced is how, how I took it. But I want Joe, you, I you, will get, I will give you the four. I will give everybody the four one one. And I am a, I am not, I am not Greg. I could tell you the fucking week, the day, it was the first week of June, 2014. And I was asked specifically to have mongoloids on the bill and what had happened is your former partner in back to school jam had said to me well we're doing they're going to have mongoloids new jersey last show but they want to do a this is hardcore last show had there been no new jersey last show mongoloids would have done the last show at this is hardcore However, because you had Wolf Bailey, however, because you had Wolf Bailey as a person saying we want X amount of money because of their last show, that was the point of anger and contention. Your problem when the last show is not this hardcore after paying a band last show money, if that makes sense. So what had happened is, as we dissect the moving pieces, I was more mad at Greg. Because although Greg will say, well, we weren't really friends. It's because he's an emotional bitch. I am always friends with my friends, even if I have disagreements. When my friend says they want to play their last show at This Is Hardcore. And then they go ahead and they plan to book this big real last show two weeks later. That makes me absolutely incensed and super mad. But what I know to be true is that Greg's partner who is, well, I don't bring people's names up more on my show. That's the way it works. Greg's partner was also lobbying his own personal rise to fame. And so it wasn't just about back to school jam being something that came out of the Mongoloids last show, but Greg's partner was also leveraging his own personal rise to fame and power within the New Jersey hardcore show. 
So he was using the Mongoloids last show as a way to book this one day mini fest. And frankly, it's like, hey, cool, do your own fest, but leave me out of having a Mongoloids last set if two weeks later you're playing New Jersey. Because the age old adage of no one's going to know there's two shows is bullshit. And as yeah. long as time has been, long as time memorial, hardcore bands are booked and all their friends tell everybody. So why would I pay a band a couple thousand dollars to play a fake last show when they're going to do their own in New Jersey in their own neighborhood with all these fucking other bands, some of them which were play, already playing this hardcore. So you were unfortunately a part of a trifecta where Wolf, who's my friend, Mr. Bailey, loved to ask for a lot of money. And also you were partnered up in this thing with a dude who has an insane ego, which is eventually what got him in his troubles. And it was kind of like, yeah, get your money from this hardcore because they're a big fest and they have all this money. And then we're still going to do this awesome show that it's going to come to. And I felt like I was the one getting fucked in this situation. So I got really upset and mad and screamed at everybody. Yeah, All parties got screamed at. But I could take, I could take full responsibility, not for overacting, but from not seeing that it was a trifecta of three separate entities specifically working to their own benefit. You were the least of the problem because you just wanted to play this hardcore one last time. Well, and, and you and I weren't really talking that actively then. I mean, and you're right. I, I was also, we, I was also in the lowest point of my entire life that year. And psychologically heading towards an actual mental breakdown. So I was cutting a, I was cutting every human being who wasn't critical to my absolute daily life almost out because I was mentally falling apart. So yeah. something that you may not see or maybe took personal, but I was having like, you know, like by the end of that summer, I tried to commit suicide. I was having a full mental breakdown for like the last, you know, now I think it was like 11 months. If you really want to get to it, I was having a full mental breakdown. However, it was not a personal thing. It's kind of like Greg wants to do the last Mongoloid show because he loves this hardcore. That's the good side. Wolf Bailey being the booking agent wants a lot of money because it's their last show. Third party guy wants to have his own. See, I booked this thing. I'm important now. Everyone should worship me. New Jersey hardcore thing happening all at once. And so I acted probably what someone else may say, man, that was really extreme. But really for me, I'm just, I overreact at times. I don't think I overreacted. I feel like I was just was now looking back at it because there was, you know, things, things that people do come out of time. You know, I've got emails from this dickhead. I've got a telephone. I've got a telephone call where there's a New Jersey lie system. And this is a New Jersey only lie. Only in the New Jersey only lie. Only in the state about of New Jersey. A lot of times. <laughs> only in New Jersey will someone say to you, I never said that. And you're supposed to be someone who goes, you're right. You never said that. However, I have this problem where I have a very sharp memory specifically for dates, times, numbers, and it is locked in my fucking head. So when you say to me, oh, our show isn't until mid-August, and I go, au contraire, mon frere, my fucking show is August. No, And then he goes, no, no, I never said August. I said our show was in June. It wasn't in June. You said August. You got caught, your, your partner got caught in a lie and then was trying to make up for it. And then 
when I said, fuck that, Mongo Wins ain't playing this hardcore. He's like, well, you know, we're just going to do our own thing anyway, man. And I'm like, yeah, you're already doing your own thing. You're not doing it for any other purpose that you already had it planned. And that's how I look at it. Well, what you just said is what the original idea was. So the tour was in June and we were going to have New Jersey a part of the tour. And then the last show is going to be, this is hardcore. Then when the, uh, Joe yelled at everybody and it all fell apart, it was just like, all right, well, let's just pull New Jersey from the tour and just throw it in August. We'll that's, call that's out of time. The same time that you're talking about in June, we'll have, we'll keep having the same argument, but you're out of time. The same time we were talking about it, the same time we were talking about it, this hardcore had already been announced. So it was actually, it wasn't in June. This hardcore was announced in April of that year. So it was sometime between April and May that year. There was supposed to be you guys doing this. Because we, we actually announced 2014, this hardcore, in early April. So we were talking about this. That guy already knew about August. That was the problem. You were telling me one thing. He was telling me another. And Wolf Bailey gave me a bunch of money he wanted to make it happen. Yeah. And for me... I've, you know, like I lost friends over telling them they would say, Hey, my band's going to play our last show at this hardcore. I'm like, How about you not play? What do you mean? Well, you're not a very big band. So now you're a band that I would look as an up and coming band. So why play your last show at my fest when I'll just put a new up and coming band on and give them the shot? Yeah. I've done that. I've kicked two or three bands off for saying, Hey, uh, we're going to do our last show here. I've also helped bands do their last show at this hardcore, depending on the balancing point. But my biggest thing is, is like with, I want you to understand this. That's what you're saying is not accurate. Your partner was telling me about August. And then I asked bands who were, I asked him what bands are playing and asked them. And they all said, oh yeah, we're playing this thing in New Jersey, but that's like two or three weeks after we didn't think you would care. So you were pulled into it. Yeah. I got mad at you the most because you were the closest person to me. I kind of felt like, mistakenly like either you were unaware of what was being said to me but i felt i was getting fucked over because i'm like damn dude what the fuck like i don't care about the money part i care about you're going to do another show two weeks later that would immediately negate quote unquote the selling point of last show ever for mongoloids it'd be just like the last bane it'd be like the last mongoloid set of this article which wouldn't have had the same ticket price that bailey was showing yeah, and to be and to be fair, at this point, I didn't hit Joe up at all. So directly, we weren't really communicating at all. And and I am emotional with this kind of shit. I'm a, I'm a cancer, so it's like so am I. Yeah, I'm, so that yeah, too, it's like it's, it's, that doesn't help anything. <laughs> so so um, and and the money side, I mean, I didn't even know what was going on with it. Like, I mean, we I think we got paid like a thousand bucks for back to school gym the first year. It's like I was never Molly's was never about that shit. As long as we covered what needed to be covered. Like I, we were never a high, I mean, you know, yes, any promoter that existed then. So, so to hear that it was thousands, I never even heard that before until right now. It's like, geez, I wouldn't have paid a thousand, thousands. Uh, multiple thousand. Fuck that. I would not multiple have Multiple thousands. I would, uh, I would not, I would not pay among woods that ever. And uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's, I it's, am actually so fucking crazy. I am so fucking crazy. I have an email from 2014. It says, uh, here we go. I'm pulling it up just so we're aware. 
where he's like, hey, I noticed that Mongoloids isn't on the ad mat. And this is when I'm like, yo, this is so April 2nd is when I flipped out and found out there was going to be a show in August after I was asked to pay several thousand dollars for a Mongoloids last show in, in Philadelphia. So timeline. No, man, it wasn't going to be. We were going to do a last show in New Jersey in June, but I already knew there was a show in August. So there was three things going on at once, and that's yeah. why I got so mad. Um, that's fucked up. Say la vie. Look where yeah. we're at now. You're in you're in Los Angeles. You're fucking killing it. You're managing bands. You're a father of a one of the cutest kids I've ever seen in my entire goddamn life. Your wife just basically rides on a Peloton 23 and a half hours a day. This is all good stuff. So none of that really matters in the long run. I agree, I agree 100. I, I really it, it all laid out how it laid out. And honestly, doing that that August show ended up you know being able to do five more years of it. And I think it was really cool for New Jersey. And I, I'm I'm happy it all happened the way it did. For me, I find that my entire life shifted at that time. That was a hard year. I went crazy. And then after that, I kind of relaxed on so many things because I was hyper tense about my own personal life, post-trauma that I just never dealt with. So, you know, there was a thought years ago where like there is a limited space for how much people care about this stuff. And I've changed drastically to the complete diametric opposite and i think the more stuff that happens as long as you respect like industry standards as far as like proximity and time to allow for markets to promote the rest is history what people will support what people will support they'll support but there was a time when i used to think too often about how every single thing could affect this hardcore and i'm glad that i kind of I mean, that was seven years ago from this year. So my entire my entire idea on life has changed so much drastically, especially after my mental breakdown. Was 2014 the year Fury of Five played? Yes, the first time. Okay, so so yeah, because that makes what you're saying is 100% true because then further into, I guess, end of 2014, top of 2015, you and I finally like spoke, really had like a heart to heart and then, I was back on the hardcore and I was stage managing again and it all kind of like went, you know, went how it needed to go. And honestly, like I remember even going back to April, 2014, when all this crazy shit was going the whole time, Nat was like, you you know, my wife, Natalie was like, you need to just call Joe and figure it out. Like, why are you having these people talk for you? And I was just like, they're not talking for me. They're choosing to talk. I mean, I don't fucking care. I'm not calling them. And that was like, you know, definitely my fault. I should have just picked up the phone and been like, what the fuck is this? Or come to Philly and be like, let's just figure it out. Because there was a lot of third party shit going on at that time that I think was like, like you telling me thousands of dollars. That's like, that makes me feel uneasy. And I don't want to listen to be like, damn, man, Greg was always about the money because that's the thing. Well, Greg's a fucking. All right, all right. Let's, let's, let's dial this one once. This will be, we're going to tell one story and then we're going to get on to how you're the fucking mogul right now. Just so people understand this. I ride out for Greg Mongoloids then, now, over so many human beings. One specific circumstance comes from my dear former friend, Joseph Nunn, stirring up the pot with Sean Mongoloids. And Sean, via Bridge Nine, was accusing uh, Greg of like being money hungry 
and stealing money and all this stuff. And, and one thing I should make clear, there's another practice of important information. If someone ever tells you this guy stole the money, this goes from Chubby Fresh, this is for Shadow Rumstiff. Whoever is the person who accuses someone who steals the money, 99% of the time is the stealer of the money. And that's just a fact. You can ask Frank Three Guns. Anytime you hear someone say, oh, that guy stole the money, it's they're hiding the fact that they stole the money. So at some point, Sean Mongoloids tries to talk shit on Greg on Bridge Nine, and Mongoloids is supposed to set the play this hardcore. And Greg's like, I don't know what to fucking do. I'm tired of this fucking shit. And you remember what I told you about the T-shirt? Oh, the t- yeah. So we made T-shirts that were basically like clowning yeah. on the yeah, literally. I said, you need to make a shirt that says, is anybody stealing me? And a picture of you eating money. <laughs> it's yes. like the dumbest idea. Just to be like, fuck you. Like, we don't care. You made the shirts. They went to TD, TDT, Jeff, and someone stole them from TDT. <laughs> got stolen. And what's crazy is people were blaming you. Like, Greg stole those shirts. And you're like, why would I steal the shirts that I want people to sell to make fun of the fact that I'm getting accused of stealing money that isn't there? And then, and this, and this yeah. was like in the in the midst of this is hardcore chaos. So it's like Joe, this is hardcore weekend. This is just not the time for Joe to ever deal with shit like this. So he was just fucking furious, and and it just turned into like a whole thing. Like, did who stole the shirts? Where are the shirts? And then like that was my introduction to Cracker. <laughs> was cracker was supposed to get the information out of me i was like i didn't fucking steal it. why would i steal my own shirts this doesn't make any sense like i don't i don't really care and it just turned into this whole slew of shit and and honestly to speak on sean like sean sean and i spoke like a year ago and or not i don't even know when we spoke um we spoke at some point and and like i just think we were all friends we were all actually friends when the band started and then the band fucking drove us all crazy and me being me I just could not accept the fact that someone was telling me when and when I can't do the band that I played every show. I was there every fucking time. And did I get money when other people didn't? I'm sure I fucking did. But I was also like, it was never to be fucking against anybody or be like, I'm taking this money. It wasn't like that. It was like, I was playing every single show. I was driving lineups and building lineups on a day's notice, 12 hours. Hey, I'm not going to play this show tonight. Okay. I'll figure it out. And I guess, I guess it just drove me nuts. And, and I, I loved all those guys. They were like my real friends, like straight up. That's how the band ended up happening after two years of wanting to do a band was we were all friends. We all liked hardcore. And it was like, Hey, let's do this band. Okay. Let's do this. is going to be really fun. So it's like, you know, I love Sean. He's ridiculous. And he's hilarious. And it's like, it sucks that all this shit that went down fucked up so many friendships and like all the stealing shit and all the crazy shit, but in the same breath, like I would never change it because all of those things helped me get to where I am right now. And like taught me so much about like, I don't, I mean, Mongols was almost like a, a, a professional wrestler is how I would look at it. We were like a heel. Then we were good and everybody liked us. Then we were a heel again. Then everyone hated us. And then at the end, I feel like we were able to end it in a position where people were like, at least respected it to some degree. And that's why, you know, I spoke to Sean because Bob Wilson actually had hit up Mongoloids to play. And I said, okay, we'll play FYA. If you get the original lineup, you deal with it. And he said, okay, I'm going to deal with it. So he started hitting up all the original members 
And we were close to, it was close to happening in 20, I guess last, last year, the last one that happened, but then uh, one of the guys just wasn't down and, you know, it was either all, all together or not at all. And we just didn't do it. And, and it is what it is. Like, like I said, the only time I would ever play with Mongoloids again is if it was original lineup, because I already had a last show. I already got to say goodbye to it, but playing with those original members would at least be like reminiscent of what the fuck it was. And, you know, I, some are straight, you know, I don't know who's straight edge or not. Like I'm still straight edge. The words I'm saying are still fucking real. So, you know, I don't give a fuck, you know, what anybody else does with their life at this point, but you know, New Jersey straight edge. For me, specifically when it comes to the mongoloids, I, I, I talk from like an older world where like, just like I didn't get cold world at first, I didn't get mongoloids, but I respected Greg. And that's, where I've always sat on it. I respect Greg. I respect what he was putting into the world on it. And the hustle was real, but I don't have the same interaction. This is what something that comes with being older. The older you get and the longer you've been in hardcore. Sometimes people, I've actually seen some people who are pretty cool in hardcore put on for younger bands. And they kind of like go out of the way to be like, see, I get it. I'm not an old guy who doesn't get the new stuff. And then sometimes they really get it and they're still in. It took me to, I, and I, I have the ability to look at a cultural impact. You had toured so much and been there on, I mean, you toured Agnostic Front. You toured with so many fucking bands that you became a band. Like you said, we used the, you became like the jobber opening band for so many people that you were had your own positive impact nationally by just constantly staying on the road. And that's what I was saying with the ubiquitous part. So many younger kids are like, oh yeah, you know, one of my first hardcore shows I saw, and because you're an opening band, on a hardcore package, you were an opening figure on a tour to expose people to hardcore. So, I mean, you had a real impact. Whether or not we'll look kindly and be like, sonically, this is one of the most amazing bands, probably not, but I think there's a lot of nostalgia and a lot of people that respect how much you worked. And I mean, dude, you guys put the work in and, and you guys did what you needed to do. And a lot of this built up what we're talking about next. One more thing that we should touch on before we go further is, a lot of times bands have problems. In fact, 99.9% of the times bands have problems. And some of it's money related, some of it's control related. Sometimes the writer of music wants more control of band's actions. Or they quarterback it or they go back to their friends and their friends say, yo, he fucked up. You guys should have did this instead. And that seeds a lot of the doubt and frustration that breaks up bands is arguing missteps. I've done it with Punishment. I've done it with Chat at Realm. You know, um, you kind of have to go forward and, and let go of beefs with people in your band over dumb shit like that. Because the coulda, woulda, shoulda, we could have been, we could have been what? We could have been what? We're playing in front of 150 people a night. What were we going to be? When was the record we were going to write to make us millions of dollars? They happen. Yep. And, I, and I say this all the time when I'm, when I'm doing what you're with Bob Wilson's unfortunately also doing. You talk to these old guys, like, where's the beef at? Well, you know, he wanted to do this record. And, and it's like, do you want to die saying, man, I should have not, I should have not held on this stupid beef so long. Then other times there's beef, it's hands on site. It's what it is. And you just got to fight and get it over with. But I feel like a lot of bands have specific problems that are related to the coulda, woulda, shouldas, and they don't need it. And that's what Greg had to deal with, with Sean. And actually, I remember, uh, 
you saying, yeah, Bob was trying to get Mongoloids. And in my head, I'm like, who the fuck wants to see the Mongoloids in 2020? And then I'm like, what the fuck do I know about 2020? And look at what happened in 2020. And, and I personally don't know who would have wanted to see it, but I just know for me, the only Bob reason. Wilson, Bob Wilson has, Bob Wilson, I'll say this. Um, Bob Wilson has the biggest love for you. And at times when I've been pissed off, he says, now you love Greg. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you're right. I do. I just love Greg, but I'll get pissed off. Like fucking Greg. And I'm like, dude, you know, you love Greg. Bob's always a rider, man. And, and Bob is the purest heart of gold when it comes to hardcore, because he's that old dude now who's still to me, like that's my young boy. So I don't look at him as like his own, like he's like my young yeah. man, but he's the man. Bob is the fucking man. But Bob has this beautiful look away hardcore where he, he's not the old guy putting on the pretend. You know, like I got friends in their mid forties, like I don't understand turnstile, but then I got other dudes like this is the greatest I think I ever heard, and I can never tell who's who's fucking off and who's being honest. But Bob, Bob's opinion on hardcore, his litmus is like the truest I think in earnesty. So if he says Mongoloids people like it, I have to I have to trust and respect that. So yeah. as we turn the page away from Mongoloids into what Greg is doing professionally now, it is important to understand. But as you're in these jokester bands that are playing for 100, 200 people, as we've said on 20-something other podcasts, there's things that you can learn in these tours, in these shows that you're putting on, in these flyers you're giving out, in the hustle that you're making that could go ahead and bring you to a career that doesn't include $120,000 of debt. And that is specifically what Greg does now. He handles different elements of the artists that he works with, whether it's day-to-day tour stuff, whether it's the menial tasks, or as he's going to alliterate for us now, the sense of like, what's next for a band. And I guess I got to say is all this comes because you started booking the show and John goes, fuck this. I don't want to deal with this band. Where do you take it? So, so it wasn't necessarily a band. It was, it was a, it was just a digital talent, like a YouTuber that um, he he had a number one YouTube he had a number one iTunes single which was number one in the country for 24 hours and you know he put out a song and it was just a fun stupid song and and he was you know he's just a digital digital creator you know based in YouTube Instagram Twitter just on like different social media platforms and that was kind of a world that was introduced to me through Game Changer I mean I I couldn't believe it like what I saw like. You know, it was just insane. We, he, he did a free meetup at Game Changer and the line was literally down Route 9 for the meet and greet, straight up wrapped in the parking lot. Thousand people showed up. We had a thousand shirts. They were sold out in like four halfway. So, you know, people were probably buying two, three, four shirts at a time. And it was like this whole world that, you know, it went from me jumping in the, the RV that he purchased to, to tour manage it. So by the end of it, it was like, hey, do you want to help me on a more management front? Just because like, you know, on the tour, I was calling restaurants, doing things, setting things up to be like, hey, you know, I'm with a digital creator that has 5 million on Instagram. We want to come eat there. Can you, you know, let us come eat there. And it was the same hustle that we were doing in 2010 in the Mongolian band. Hey, Chipotle, I'm a, I'm a driving in this van. And that was like a big part of touring in the, I guess, 2009 to 2012 was you know there's these chipotle hustle there was call mcdonald's call this place call chick-fil-a say you're in a band see if you can get the meal for free so i was doing applying all those same things to this tour with 
someone that can necessarily, you know, didn't necessarily need the meal for free. But for me, I was like, all right, let's, you know, let's figure it out. Let's do it. Let's, let's, I pretty much just went from hardcore to this digital space and just didn't really skip a beat, but it was a whole different world that while I'm doing this stuff, this kid that at the time was 17 was just looking at me like, holy fuck, this is crazy what you're doing right now. And then by the end, that's kind of when he was like, Hey, I'm going to give you the login to the email and, and you could just figure it out for, for moving forward. And, you know, I did after that tour, which was October, November, 2014, I ended up getting in touch with a brand that ran a trampoline park. It was called sky high sports. And I did a partnership with sky high sports that we did another meet and greet tour. And we went to all their facilities across the U S and they also brought on their partners, which, uh, you know, other trampoline parks that they were, because I guess in the trampoline world, there's like a, a hierarchy where you have these like yearly meetings and you go and probably go to the Bahamas or something and like bullshit with all the owners. So this one guy that owned Sky High Sports was linked with so many others. So we literally set up another 30 day or 30 stop, like 45 day tour, just going to these trampoline parks. And that ended up being, you know, gr grossing multi-millions of dollars and it was just like that was kind of my first I guess like independently done thing in this space and then that kind of opened the door to you know me really diving into the space and understanding it more and doing tours in it I toured in the digital space on the management side but traveling with the artist you know doing I did multiple domestic I've done Europe we, we should probably stop this for a sec at this point, if you're like me listening to this, you're probably saying, wait, 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 wait. What's the part where you were calling up? And this is something that I know, but I think you should, you need to, you kind of yada yada and cool guide your way through this. I toured in the United States from 1999 to 2005 often. I've done weekend tours pretty much from 1998 to 2008. I was so mad when I heard that you jerk offs were calling up fast food places, telling them that you were in bands and they were giving you free food. So fuck you. But also <laughs> yeah, tell was, people what you were doing. Cause I can't believe it's real. That was like a very, that especially in like 2010, 2011, 2012, you would call. How Chipotle. did you find out about this and what, what happened? I need to know. Oh my God. I'm trying to, how did we find, I feel like Josh from expire might've been the person that, that like told me about it and basically said, Hey, you call Josh saying and expire and great guy. And you would basically call and be like, Hey, I'm in a bit if you called Chick-fil-A, you'd basically say, Hey, I'm in a Christian band and we're, you know, in town and we've had a lot of really, you know, unfortunate things happen and we're, we're, you know, our van's broke, whatever you make up some bullshit story. I'm just like, Hey, can we get, can we get uh, you know, we really like to bring the band in and we'll uh, you know, and come eat there. And honestly, it wasn't even about like posting or anything like that. Like in current day, you'd have to be like, Oh, I'll post an IG story and come eat there. But now then it was just like basically saying the saddest story you could come up with and how you're an aspiring artist. And these places would be like, yeah, bring the, bring the band in, come on in. Like, let's, let's, let's have a dinner. Oh, how's your tour going? And maybe you leave them a t-shirt or something. But for us, it's like, imagine feeding a band and then the band gives you a shirt that says the Mongoloids. It was like every time it was ridiculous. Cause it's like, we didn't have a normal band name. We weren't, 
any, we were the mongoloids. In 2021, we couldn't even exist. The mongoloids, you fucking kidding me? So it's like, it was every time we would give them the shirt, they would, you know, it would be like, ha ha ha. So we'd have to like, it was strange though. You basically call and make a sob story and hope they give you free food. So I think we may have signed a Waffle House paper placemat one time. Never got free food. So fuck you. <laughs> Sorry for sidebar that. Now we're going to get into this thing. So you're dealing with this, you're dealing with this artist who obviously the ball is always already rolling. I guess yeah. the, the, the million dollar question is how much of when you first interacted in this space with this artist, did you have to fake the funk? How much of it was bullshitting or how much of it was just flying by the seat of your pants and learning what you didn't know as you were doing it? To be, to be honest, looking at his overall business, I don't think I necessarily faked the funk because in my head, I just immediately put myself back in that mongoloids van. All right, imagine if you had 3 million followers, what the fuck would you be doing? Like, how is this dude not like, how are we going on this tour and paying to rent these places? There, you know, this, cause the initial tour, we obviously just called 30 places and, and brokered a deal. Some of them we paid, some of them we, whatever, but like, I didn't really understand the space at that point. So I was just being brought on as like, Hey, Greg, you know how to go on tour, go be the tour manager for this kid and just make sure he doesn't, you know, kill himself. I'm like, okay, cool. You know, kill himself in a way of like, driving the RV into a wall. So drive and basically do every hat that a person would, you know, tour manager, merchandise, <laughs> ticketing. I was literally doing the entire thing. And then during that tour, I'm kind of seeing all the opportunity. I'm like, why are we paying to rent these venues? When this kid's following, he's bringing 500 minimum to every city. Imagine if you were a pizza place and you were going to guarantee 500 people to come to your city. Okay. Now imagine how much money that pizza place is making on top of those 500 people. Those 500 people are in line waiting. They're going to spend money. So it's like, okay, we could broker deals where maybe it's like, this is what we're going to bring. Or if they really want to like push that, it's not going to be there, make a minimum earn. Okay. Like, you know, similar to what Webster Hall used to do in New York city, you, the bar would have to make blank amount of money. And if they don't make it, you pay the difference. So it's like, okay, we can do a lot, a lot of bigger clubs do that. But I remember Webster Hall in New York City specifically did it. But you know, broker those deals that can kind of save that money up front instead of paying thousands of dollars to rent these places or hundreds, whatever it ended up being, like to make it work, we could essentially do it for free. And that's kind of like no no one was doing that for him, you know. And and for me, I think at the time John was going about it like very like wanting to sign the talent. I want to sign the talent. But to me, I was like, fuck signing the talent like i just want to work with the talent and figure it out like which which now after i've done it for you know 14 to 21 just 14 to 21 like i do think having deals in place are good but i also think if you're doing a good job because at the end of the day if you if you sign a talent and they're not happy with you are you going to really keep them locked in by the agreement it's, it's like goes against everything I stand for. Why don't, you lay, why don't you lay some of that out? Because we're starting to get in, we're starting to get some nuances where people listening may have been lost here. So first thing we're going to go over this real quickly is there's different kind of deals that happen at venues. There's uh, such a myriad of, of different deals, different levels that it's almost impossible. If we do 10,000 podcasts, we never cover all of them. Yeah. But um, more importantly in, in regard, so we thought about specifically is, is with the, Sometimes uh, there's a minimum amount of money that a bit, that a bar at a venue needs to profit 
for a promoter to start making any money. And the promoter is actually guaranteeing a certain amount of people and a certain amount of money. Otherwise, they're on the dangle to pay the difference. That's what Greg's talking about. But why don't you break down what you were talking about, how John wanted to sign the talent and the deals and how you were, and then vice versa. Just so people, it's more or less to give a background so someone's listening isn't lost in the biz talk that you're laying down for us. So John was trying to get a contract done. He had his attorney draft a contract with deal points, whether the term was two years, five years, 10 years, what the splits would be if it was like a, maybe it was like a, a ladder where, you know, first two years it's 15%, next two years it's 20%, next two years it's 25, whatever, however he structured his percentages and whatever else was in the deal. And the talent at the time that, that, that I was touring with and he was trying to sign just wasn't having it. He didn't want to sign a deal right then. He had just gone at, gotten out of another deal. And I think the talent just turned 18. And that's what, that's what happened. Because when you're a minor, if you're, if you're a, if you're a talent and you're a minor, when you sign that agreement, you also have to get it court approved, which is like, there's a lot of steps in signing underage talent because you'd have to get them to agree to the deal points, get their family or whoever their um, guardian is at the time to agree to the deal points. And then you have to get them all to sign the agreement and then you'd have to get it legally court approved, which I've, it's, it's a massive process. And it's actually gotten more expensive since I got into this space, just because like, you have, to, with, yeah, you, have to, you have to authenticate it and, and just people are, yeah, people are fucked up. I mean, they're trying to take advantage of kids and, and the, sp- the digital space in, in general as like a, an overview is like the wild west. You literally get people that have no experience, no idea, but maybe their mom is rich and they're like, all right, I'm going to start a management. I'm going to manage social media because from starting in 2014 to, to 2021, you know, back in when I started, it wasn't, it's grown so much. And I get, you where, go- you're go- I get where you're going, but you're going to go past where we're just at again. Got to slow you down. You get into the biz talk too quick. So he wants to sign a talent where you were looking to engage the talent and kind of just like you did with Mongoloids to handle the hands on everyday stuff. And you feel that that was what gave you the extra information that you weren't having at that time. I wanted the talent to want me. I wanted the talent to keep me around. Oh, so you wanted to earn, you wanted to earn it by showing them the work versus signing them immediately. Now, what are the pros and cons to what your take is versus what he was in suggesting? I mean, the, the pros and cons are if somebody else comes along with with some big signing bonus or something along the lines of that, you get cut out. But I guess for me, if you can make it in with the talent and like make good with them and they trust you, they'll bring you along. Like it just depends on what – at that time, I was confident that he was going to keep me around. Like I, I just knew – the relationship we were building and kind of like he saw that I didn't fuck around and I wasn't immediately trying to get him to sign some 10 year long agreement. I was like, Hey, here's what I'm going to do for you. Here's what I did for you on this tour. Do you want to do it again in January? I have a partner ready to go. That's going to pay for all the expenses. And this is the like, guy. This is the guy that I met, right? Yeah. 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 When we got oh, we, awesome we, times. Yeah. So I guess it's hard to have both, but you kind of need both. It's, it's hard to work and not have a full S agreement because someone could come in and take work that you've established as a founding point 
But then because of how much your life depended on physically at an everyday level with this specific talent that we're talking about, if you're doing all this and they'll go somewhere else, you almost don't need the bullshit. Like you were doing so much at that stage that there's almost like a, do you really want to work for someone who's not loyal to you? Cause how loyal, how much of your own time you're giving to make his life easier. I mean, a hundred percent. And that was the thing is to be honest with you, with, with my, with the first town I worked with in the, in the digital space, I never had an agreement with them ever. We never did a formal agreement. This I was the second with, time you said digital space. Digital. You, I need to under, so like, let's break this down again. We're talking about listeners who don't, who aren't as smart as you, Greg. All right. <laughs> I know so about that. Greg was on tour with a talent. We keep his name out of it because there's no reason to bring him in. This guy's driving everywhere. He's a part of the show. From the minute the person wakes up, like literally like, Coming to America, Greg's waking this person up because he's underage, waking him up, getting him to where he has to go, making sure he does the right thing with the fans, make sure he performs, selling the merch, settling the deal at the show. Then, thankfully to Greg, I get to hang out with the talent. We go to a lovely diner and hang out with this kid, and they seem pretty wild and cool. But you're basically the driver the waker upper, you practically bathe the kid, dress the kid, get him to the show, make him perform, handle the business part, keep him from blowing shit up because he was a maniac. Yeah. And then make sure he goes to bed at a time that you guys could get up and do this all over again. Yeah. Uh, for the initial tour, I was literally wearing every hat. Like we oh, brought his brother in. We brought his brother in to help with merch probably like four weeks into the tour for the last three weeks of the tour, just because like doing all that as well as like, it was a heavily cash, it was heavily cash operated. So it was like to go to the bank every day and fit in all these things with like doing the actual sales. Like I needed some help and he, he didn't really trust a lot of people. So he's like, Oh, my older brother, I can bring in and, and you'll get along with them. His, his brother was cool. And like he came in and he was like a part of our crew for pretty much the entire time that we worked together. Now, when we think about this one, where do, where do you think you went wrong and what would you have done differently in hindsight with the relationship? I would have given more advice and more professional feedback instead of just letting the talent really like navigate everything and like not give, because I was, I was like, I don't know, it was the first time I ever worked with talent and, and like, I was really letting him make a lot of the decisions and I wasn't necessarily, I guess, pressing the things I, I should have been like, Hey, for your career, this is what you need to do. And he would kind of like, he was very bullheaded and he kind of drove the ship the way he wanted it to go. And I was always kind of, I would want to think I was up there with them, but a lot of the time I wasn't. And I was kind of just like, I don't want to, I don't want to say this, but it, it, I was kind of a bitch in a way. Like I really like, I let him make too many terrible decisions that I should have walked away or put my foot down and be like, this is fucking stupid. But I guess I was so eager to be in the position I was in that I was like, like, whatever he's going to do what he's going to do. So I need to just make sure that like, he's, you know, it's okay. And that, that was a hundred percent. I should have really like 
intervened way more on, on just business decisions. And, and I, I did, I was there, but sometimes he would make like outlandish decisions and you'd be like, what the fuck is going on to get like in positions that you don't, I didn't want to be in personally. And, and he shouldn't have been in, but he would just, cause he, he had just turned 18. So it was like, I don't know. Yeah, that's that's what I would say. I should have. He was like, I'm my own man now. I'll do whatever. A hundred percent. And he was from like, uh, he was from like a trailer park in Indiana. So it was like, he just did not give a fuck. Like he grew up just doing probably similar shit we were all doing when we were kids. Like, you know, so I don't know. Yeah, I should have, I should have had more of a, I should have insisted on more of a say or at least held my ground a little bit more instead of being like I, w- I don't know I guess not a pushover but I guess just like so because it was my first taste of the space and he was you know he I came into it and he was so big already and I was just like this is incredible I can't believe and I was learning I learned so much in those three years we worked together like 15 16 we stopped working together in 2017 so it's like we worked together through a ton of, we traveled the entire world together so all right, walk us through, as you're working with him, how you started encountering other artists and some more of the things that we're talking about here. Now that we kind of have a, a lay of the land of what you were working on and like what came next. So when I was working with him, I met another group of guys that were running a management company out of Philadelphia, actually. And uh, they had they were from South Jersey, randomly enough, and then they moved to to Philly and that's where they had their, their company ran out of. And we kind of became friends just cause we were all from the same area and they, they were getting ready to sign a talent that I had also like been talking with loosely. We were all kind of talking to the talent and then they ended up getting the deal. And I more or less was like brought on to be like the, the tour manager again, just because from the first relationship, I was like exhausted from managing. Like, I was like, yeah, I just don't even give a shit. And this other kid's about to blow up. So it's like, why don't I just go back to touring? He's going to tour eight, seven, seven, eight months out of the year. He's going to have a huge business and I'm going to be built into it. So it's like, fuck it. I'm just going to do that. Like, I don't really care. And I, and I never really like agreement stuff. I'm very strange with, I guess I'm very different with because coming from hardcore, I just, I don't want to like press and press and like try and figure it out and like desperately fight to get somebody to sign an agreement of like, I want them to want to, to do it. I want them to be excited to do it. And like the digital space really is like the wild, wild west. So it's like they, it's, it's sometimes harder to get it done, which is why I think I always keep my, my clientele, like less is more. I'd rather work with a handful of, of YouTubers or whatever, whatever they're doing, then work with 30 and be spread too thin and not be able to do a good job. Cause at the end of the day, I want everyone to be like, Greg knows his shit. Greg's fucking solid. He, he gets the job done. I don't want anyone to be like, yeah, he doesn't answer the phone when I call him. Like, where the fuck is he? What the fuck's he doing? It's not a, uh, that's not what I want to project in, in my work relationships. I want people to like ride for me, you know, same way Bob Wilson rides for me. To be like, if someone ever says, fuck Greg, they'd be like, nah, that's, you know, you could, you could think that, but that's not right. Now, as you're, as you're working on getting a place in this world, what are the, some of the obstructions? Is, is it that you didn't go to college? Is it that you don't have good networking? Was there anything that was coming up in the early stages for you 
that was blocking you from really like moving at the speed you're used to moving at, like within the hardcore world? I didn't come from mommy and daddy's money because so many, so many of these companies had, you know, their parents' money to lean on that they can start an application, they could start a house, they could do all these things and basically just lean on their parents' bank accounts or whoever their, their you know, relationship is. Maybe it's a friend, I don't know, but typically more times than not, it's rich parents. And then you have their, their golden child that's like, okay, I'm gonna start a management company and I'm gonna sign all this talent. Oh, okay, well, it's harder to sign talent, but if I have a $50,000 signing bonus or I have a $100,000 signing bonus, I'm gonna get all this talent. And it's 100% true, you know, at that time, in 2015, 2016, when you had money like that, like you could pretty much get any, any deal done. Say, okay, fuck it. You don't want to sign this. How about a $50,000 signing bonus? Wait, do I have to recoup it? No recouping. You just take the money. Fuck. All right. I'm down. And that I saw that happen so often in the space. So basically people who have extra money are spending it on people. So they have a career is what you're saying. Exactly to tie themselves into to, to digital, the digital space. Cause I mean, the digital space, you know, and I say the digital space, it's so broad like that because it's like, you have kids on Instagram. You're, you're, ta- you're talking about it. Like it's a parallel universe. Kind so of I, it. So why don't you give me a rundown of what that is? Because it sounds like you're talking about like a secret world. We're not allowed in. No, it's, it's more just like any social media platform that, you know, a given talent might be operating on. So maybe it's, YouTube, maybe it's Instagram, maybe it's Twitter. Right now, TikTok is a massive platform. Booming. Yeah, it's it's like, you know, and we and I've been in that. I saw musically stuff. Don't don't go too far. Continue on the first thing. So, 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 so TikTok, you know, it's like TikTok is straight up making careers right now. A kid goes well, where does this go back to? So basically, are you saying the digital space? is any of the platforms where money is made from the monetization of the platforms. It's not so much in live entertainment. Is that what you're getting at? hundred percent, but it's not even necessarily the monetization of the platform. Now it's even like labels coming in and trying to pitch songs for, you know, a tick, use this tick, use this song on TikTok, and I'm going to pay you $10,000 to do it. Or it could be, um, you know, brands coming in and saying, Hey, we want you to do a, uh, a post on your Instagram for Pepsi. Okay. There's going to be a branded post for Pepsi. You'll see in the top left corner under the username paid partnership with Pepsi. And then it's a post, you know, driving people to Pepsi. Okay. So what you're saying is because of the outlet and the, and the ease in which people have these platforms in the digital space, that it's equally easy for persons who have unlimited assets to come in and try to market and manage these people. Is that what you're saying? A 100%. Because they see the return on it. So they're like, okay, if I can, if I can just get into the, into the camp to work with them, I'll, I'll lose $50,000 on it because in the end, I'm going to make $50 million on it. And honestly, I can do this with my parents' money anyway. So they're protected. And it's just different. It's like, it's just, yeah, it's, that's, that's the hardest part is like, you know, cause people are there, if their parents have a billion dollars or millions of dollars, what the fuck do they care? They'll lose a couple hundred thousand. Oh, well. Now going back to your story and how this plays out, where, where did you succeed 
with all these people having the assets of their family to kind of uh, put themselves in this world? Like where, where do your strengths get you, get you things where they would be buying people? To honestly be willing to be with, be with the talent all the time and be like on the front line, whether it's going to a shoot or doing a, a partnership with a brand or going on tour. Like I've, I kind of pride myself in being at the front lines with them and like, and riding with them. And I think a lot of the time in this space, it's more like executive style sitting behind a desk and making phone calls. And I just don't think that's the way to get it done in terms of really understanding what a client wants. Cause it's a, it's a, it's a quick space. So maybe, you know, they're wanting to do, one thing one week and then the next week they're like wow i saw this and i really want to do an animated film like i would really love to partner with you know whatever whatever it would cartoon network let's say and do this animated film and you kind of have to i think being there on the front lines with them really builds a, a bond and a relationship and also helps you understand what your client wants rather than them just being like you know, weekly phone call or, you know, two phone calls a week. I think being really there and involved helps you kind of navigate their business the way, the way these businesses should be navigated. Because I mean, they're, it's, it's a massive industry, like kids in elementary school. Now that used to say, I want to be a firefighter. I want to be a police officer. Now they're saying, I want to be a YouTuber. The, the world is flipped upside down since I started in 2014 to, to 2021. And it's like, I, I was lucky enough to get in early and really learn so many things that, that like, why don't you walk us through that change? Like, obviously don't get too deep in the nuances, but give us a background in the space that you entered the stuff that you were in seeing and then how it kind of deviated once the proliferation of YouTube and TikTok money came into the youth world. I mean, just, I mean, like, you know, when I came in, like a year after I came in, I guess, or yeah, probably a year, year and a half after I came in, you know, Musical.ly was created, which, which goes on to be TikTok, but Musical.ly was like, was just like an app you go on and have fun with. Like it wasn't, there was no money behind it. You didn't get paid to be on it. Your, your revenue, you didn't receive money for views or anything like that. Now we fast forward five years to TikTok. TikTok, there's a creator fund that the bigger creators get entered in to earn money on the views they're seeing, similar to YouTube. YouTube has AdSense, right? So if you see a video with 10 million views, then you know that's that equates to a good amount of money. I mean, a million views will could end up being between three and five thousand dollars. So it's like when you see, and it just it also depends on like the activation on the videos. So if you have this content that has a lot of likes but then it also has a lot of engagement, a lot of comments. I mean, that drives up the revenue that th these artists are seeing. So it's, it's just like, a, you well, know, right. so what were you doing in the space as this stuff's coming up? And, like what and, you were working with musicians, you were working with, what were you working with versus what TikTok and that would take into the space? I, I never, I, I guess music, I wouldn't consider them musicians. I would just consider the music side a piece of their content. Cause I never worked with it. Like, cause when I was working, I worked with one musician that did albums and signed a, a major label deal. But when I was working with him, I was just on the touring front. I didn't, I didn't do any of the management decisions. I kind of like 
left management to go back to touring. And I saw he had a big enough touring business where I was like, okay, I'm going to be fine. And I can kind of alleviate all the crazy management side of shit. So you had actually shifted from touring to Mongoloids to touring with talent to get into the management side. And then you went back to touring. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Explain that. Like lay that out for me. I, so basically with my, my first client, we kind of came to heads and it just wasn't working out at all. So we basically like did like an exit plan where I was going to help them with a few last things, which was going to lead us to January 2017, I think. I, th- I think that's right. And then, and then we were going to part ways. So in that time, this, this other artist that the guys that I had met from Philly ended up signing, they brought me on as his tour manager. So I basically got like signed into his business to be on every tour and every live event that he does. So I exited from the original, I exited my original client. I parted ways and it's completely cool. And it was no negativity or like drama or anything like that. We just weren't seeing eye to eye and it just didn't work out. And then I went back to touring just because touring just felt a little more structured. Like even though the road is crazy and crazy shit will happen, vans break down, bus breaks down, hotel, you know, does something and you lose your room or whatever, whatever ends up happening, the artist goes crazy and, you know, has an episode and yells or breaks something. It just felt a little bit more like I could, it just felt a little more tame. I don't know. I don't know. Like I just was really exhausted from the management side. So I kind of went back there and, but when I was there, I was still able to kind of see everything going on. And I was so close to the company that was managing them that we kind of like that I was still was, I don't know, part of it. I still felt a part of it. Um, trying to figure out the best way for you to lay this out for us. So fast forward to now, how much of your business is day-to-day operations of what you're with the people that you represent are, how much of it is planning ahead, looking at the big picture and then how much of it is just being in what you're calling the digital space? Um, right now, right now I'm fully on the management side again. I, uh, I'm, I'm on the day-to-day management side. I work with, with every brand and every sponsorship we, we do. And I speak to them on a daily basis. You know, I'm partnered with agencies. An agency would be like, WME or UTA, um, those agencies usually facilitate deals and, and like send them through. So it'd be like Pepsi doesn't do deals as Pepsi. Pepsi partners with another brand agency. And then you have the f- formal agencies like UTA and WME brokering those deals. So does that make sense or not? Yeah, really? absolutely. So, so like a, a Pepsi, a Coke, a lot of the bigger brands don't do direct, direct partnerships. They do, they hire, they bring on an agency to work for them. And then an artist, a lot of the time will have an agency to help book their tours, help bring on brand sponsors, help, help navigate the overall vision for the business. So I'm on the ground for basically like organizing the weekly, monthly, yearly plans to then, you know, have these conversations with the agency that might go and be like, okay, we have the, they have this Coke deal that they really want to do. You know, can we make this work? You need to be at a shoot on Wednesday for six hours. I know he has something on his calendar. Can you rearrange it so he can be at this shoot? And then, you know, 
kind of like get the deals done. Um, and honestly, that came from the tour management stuff because I was tour managing the this artist and he basically signed a, a big record deal and had to be in LA a bunch. At this time, he was under 18. So his parents were like, yo, you're his tour manager. You go everywhere with him, whether it's a TRL performance or a, a, a tour date that he's doing. Can you go to LA with him and start staying in LA a couple of weeks out of every month to kind of like just help him get his shit done and drive around and, and be there? So I was like, fuck, I'm down. So that was like, I got hired to do this other job through tour managing with the same artist. And then as I was doing that, I was so connected back in the space that I had talent. I was seeing every day, building these relationships. And I was like, yeah, I want to get back into managing again. It's, I, I miss it. Now, unlike previously, are you signing deals or are you working with a company and they sign and you're like an attached agent or is, is this all mostly you freestyle or like freelancing for yourself? So because I was so close with the artist that I was in LA with and like traveling so much with him, I ended up getting absorbed by the company that he was represented by. So I started working directly with them and I would sign talent directly. Like I would like structure deals or figure out like structure deals and they would get a piece of it. Exactly. But then I would have their network as well to kind of lean on. Now, do you feel like once you've gotten in network that things have gotten easier because you have some mentorship so a big part of this is that you you kind of flew by the seat of your pants for so long do you feel like if you had not tied in with that that you would eventually have floundered not knowing all the extra stuff on the inside track 100 percent. and the thing with me is like if i'm like if i'm let's say i'm having a really shitty day and like something's really bothering me at work or whatever I'm with guys that are from my area and understand North Northeast language. So I can call them and fucking curse and be angry and pissed. I mean, I do it to you all the time. Call and start yelling about something and you do the same thing to me. You yell about something. It's just how I feel like in the Northeast, you operate a very specific way. And if I was with a company based in Los Angeles, that I probably would never have made it. But being with guys from my area that understand New Jersey, Philadelphia, it, it really was the best thing I could have done because those guys, I can be myself and I can operate the way I want to operate. And it just helps not having to like, like I, like on the, on the uh, Juicy Joel podcast, you know, you're talking about like professional, professional environments and how to kind of be that way. But I think for me with, with talent and stuff, I'm very professional. I know how to project myself to be, you know, the right way but to be able to work with people and have coworkers that i can call and be myself i think that also helps me a lot well i find that in construction you have to tell someone off your job what the fuck is going on 100%. and there's a uh old guy saying here three ways to get the word on the street telegraph telephone or tell a concrete finisher because you have to call your buddy on another job. You leave this fucking jerk off. Or they'd be like, yo, I just heard about something going on in your job. What's this fucking guy's doing? At all stages, everybody's hearing what everybody has going on jobs. And there's always that friendship. For me, it's it's Jay Bush or this old guy, Joe Cheeseman. And he just, and you, I've told you about the cheese. Like, cheese will just call and go, you know these fucking guys? 
and he's in his mid fifties. He's calling me complaining about a job two hours from my job. It's the nature of what we do to blow off steam. So we don't go on the job and kill someone. Now it's got to feel weird for you, man. I mean, 2013, you're touring with mongoloids in the dirt and just not really knowing where to go, but you're in Los Angeles a lot of the time work, but you got a family at home, beautiful home, beautiful daughter, beautiful wife. You grew up on us. How do you stay tied into hardcore with all this shit going on, man? I mean, I, uh, I support every current band. Like you can ask pretty much any record label that I like, if they're putting stuff out that I believe in, I buy that record. I don't hit people up and ask for a freebie copy or I don't ask to get into, you know, their show or something. Like I, I, I support hardcore financially a hundred percent. I buy records, I buy test presses, I collect, I buy the shirts, like, and I, and I truly think like for, for 34 years old, I do my part still 110%, even if I'm not, you know, promoting every week anymore, or I don't know, attending every show. Like I still full heartedly care and I follow the new bands and I pay attention to what's going on in the overall space. I guess my question is for you specifically, looking at your professional viewpoint of music, how do you see the hardcore scene in some of the ways do you feel like the hardcore scene is mismanaged for optimum monetization or do you feel like the hardcore hardcore is in a beautiful hegemony of not being in that crazy business world what kind of is i think i think i've seen it shift now where it's like mm-hmm. you know i i say i admire people like james vitalo because he's doing something that i would never ever be able to do i mean i book shirtless on instagram beautiful hair. hair beautiful hair from long island but made to be a beach bum yeah, I, I admire I admire his uh I admire him as well for those reasons. <laughs> but 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 he's also working with bands and like having to play a card. And I think he even said it on here. He said uh, you know, he was getting a lot of shit for being Mr. Professional and trying to be Mr. Business. But it's like for for me, I think it helps me personally not being directly connected to the space I work, to be able to make the hard decisions that I don't have to feel like oh, what are you doing, fucking money bag or whatever, wherever it be, like I can make decisions and and operate and like just not have like that personal attachment because that personal attachment, I mean, even with promoting shows, I mean, I really felt that at the end and like I had gotten disagreements and people said I did this and I did that and you have these other fucking clowns that sit on the outside and play both sides and feed into it. And it's like, you know, in in 2021, I, I feel like I personally keep my circle very small and, and I like it better that way, just because like, I just, I don't know. I, I um, you know, people would talk about when I'm promoting a show and it makes a thousand dollars, let's say people would say, oh, you fucking made a thousand dollars. It's not fucking hardcore, but no one would talk about when I'm booking bands, you know, and I'm, and I'm losing $4,000. No one would say, hey, Greg, you lost $4,000. Let me send you 20 bucks. Thank you for doing that. Fuck no, no one ever said that. Everyone said, fucking piece of shit made $722, piece of garbage. But the money I invested back into it, I mean, honestly, it was a wash. If if not, I lost money. So. Well, I guess 
I guess what I'm saying is, and obviously we could do an entire podcast on multiple promoter problems that happen and where people kind of, you know, we are heralded as the Kings and immediately dragged down. If we have successes that they feel are unearned, but what I was getting to, and you had actually started saying, and you got, we got sidetracked with Vitalo. A lot of hardcore today is way more monetized and driven by a business administrative mind than seat of the pants, DIY punk rock. Would you agree or disagree? A hundred percent. And it's and also what things, what things do you see specifically? I'm talking about like a fucking asshole. What do you specifically see and can kind of point out as things that you're that you're noticing in both what you do and as a professional manager and seeing bands do? I mean, I see hardcore bands at the forefront of music all because because so the company I work at is also um, big in music. We have like a bunch of artists signed and and uh, they have like a lot of departments. So I, I'm at I'm head of digital for the company I work. So like I'm I'm just on the digital side and but obviously working as a as a unit and you, you I'm friends with a lot of the people I work with. So I, I hear about a lot of the different stuff going on. So it's like, you know, hearing through those music networks, bands like Turnstile's name come up and asking what Turnstile's doing. Oh, you're friends with Turnstile's manager. It's just like, it's it's very interesting. And it also, should, like, I don't know. It's also just like seeing like just the opportunity out there. I mean, like in 2005, we didn't see a band like Code Orange with fucking the Times Square billboard going. Like that was, that didn't exist. Like that didn't, it didn't exist. With that, with that being said, though, the same mentality that we grew up on, that I grew up on at least, I don't see it as much anymore because it's there's so many people you kind of have to like figure out who stays and who goes. It's like overpopulated hardcore, but not in a bad way. I think in a bad way. You think so? Fuck yeah. Why do you say in a bad way? There's a disingenuity that comes from the constant push to be content builders. And there is a process of trying to do what you're doing with this digital space and staying the staying power of being in this space and people still talking. And if any of that was true, no one would care about killing time at all. If any was that crew, agnostic front would be dead. Yeah. And there comes to be a cult personality that just comes from certain bands or like a nostalgia, be it Mongoloids or these other bands that come up that people are emotionally tied to. That's why we talked about in the Scott Vogel episode. There are people who literally love the damn the shame. That was their first terror record. And they're not sold on the older ones, which other people call you like the Pantheon and the Bible of Terror. So because we are a social construct and a culture of a social interactions, a lot of what bands should do is not get too caught up in the business thing. And like um, the internet and its metrics are deceiving at times. And I'm big on saying, you know, don't let the numbers fool you. It's the people in front of you that count like streams can be bought. And there's definitely hardcore bands that are buying streams. There's definitely people that are really trying to lift their band out of the world. And that's, that comes in every stage of hardcore. 
where a band gets bigger and then they think, and this is, goes back to the first generation of hardcore bands, SSD, Gangrene, et cetera, et cetera, all wrote metal records. Warzone wrote a band metal record. They all wrote band metal records. Never did wants to leave the canopy of what the ceiling for hardcore is. And so for me, I would, I, I, my, my 2020 wish is more 16 and 17 year old kids doing bands at a younger age. And there's more small bands like the shackles of the world. I don't want to see them just constantly put out t-shirts and records. I want to see them play these small towns on their own. No four band package. I want to see a turn back to not needing every person and every move has to have a third man involved signings and all this stuff. It kind of presents this myopic viewpoint of like, we're gotten bigger. We're signed to something. And at you at your level, you know what I'm talking about. Like, you know, like you're, you're, there's so much to be said about just doing it for the sake of doing it. And I feel internet is talking about doing it and not doing it. So when I say we need less, we need less talking about doing things. Just fucking do them. Take your band. Don't bring anybody with you. Play for fucking 45 to 50 people in every town. And you'll probably sell more merch than if you did a four band fucking tour and had a merch cut. Well, it's, it's also, I think like the friendship level, I'm trying to think how to say this. So it doesn't doesn't make me sound like a cocksucker. Like, like when Mongoloids were at our lowest point and nobody liked us, nobody thought we were cool. We were the biggest piece of shit. We still went on tour. We did tours by ourselves. We went to bean station, Tennessee, we played to 50 people. We sold a little bit of merch and we went to the next fucking place in wherever the hell it was, Chattanooga, Tennessee. And we just moved our way through through the markets and and we just, that was what it was. And it was fine and it was fun. And I think like there's so many people that get sucked into hardcore because of friends. Like, oh, well, you know, we're friends with them and they don't necessarily support anything. They don't pay to get into the shows. They don't, they don't buy the merch. They don't, they don't buy the records. They don't really care. They're just there because they're friends there it's kind of like disassociating yourself with that to be like, okay, who are the actual hardcore kids and and what are they here for? Because it does seem confusing when like in a space you have like, again, kids leaning on their parents' wallet to buy the $500 Warzone t-shirt to do what with it, to post on an Instagram page. And then what, what happens? Where does it go? What are you doing currently that, that shows your passion for what hardcore is? It just, it gets very diluted with so many people around, but, but the reason I said it's a bad, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing is because maybe there are people that wouldn't have found out about it previously that are like, holy shit, this is fucking sick. And they're excited. And like, you know, I look at myself kind of like that, you know, I was finding ska and popular stuff. And then, you know, a band like Glassjaw had X's on their hands and I was like, fuck, I'm fucking straight edge. And that's, and I'm still fucking straight edge. So I'm not a fucking bitch, but you know, you, you kind of like, that's, you know, that's kind of how I got into it was like accidentally. So maybe there's these other kids that come to the show and they actually do care rather than just ride their friends to the end. I'm not even worried about caring because caring is subjective. I just meant like the way that people interact, they talk about like, they talk about things like a strategic business moves. And I think that sometimes organic interest is built from just playing shows and you've yep. seen it with Mongoloids is where I was getting this at. Like just playing them small places and not having like a three year plan to be a world takeover is what I want to see more out of our core. But let's not get too sidetracked into that. So 
I, I want to ask you a couple quick ones. We'll get your uh, ass out of here because I know you know you actually work and kick ass. The first thing for me is wondering if there is a balance point where a band can work, have someone at a professional level represent them, and still be true to all the facets and aesthetics of like a punk world. Or do you feel as if from once you start paying people to be business managers and bookers that you are presenting a product that has to have commercial value? No, I think, I think it's, I would, I'll say a band currently that's doing a good job at that, in my opinion, is not to lose. I think they have huge, uh, more commercial appeal, quote unquote, but they're also able to like disassociate that from that world and be like, fuck it. Well, we're going to play this hardcore. Who knows if anyone's really going to know or care, but let's just do it. Let's try it. We're going to bring these openers that I don't know, you know, how they translate to the world that we're coming from, but fuck it. Let's try it. Like. All right. So when it comes to knock loose, Shadow Rome had played after them at tsunami, which is funny to think that we would never be able to do that anywhere else. But we played our first show as Shadow Realm fully as at the tsunami. And I had talked to him outside and I said this on another podcast. I don't put bands on shows because they're gonna be big. I don't I don't need the knock loosed that's going to not care about being on this hardcore because it's like that's transactional. You know, like I I want knock loose to be knock loose and get on stage and want to be there. And knowing from Brian Garris that he was excited to play was the difference point of why I wanted them on the bill. There's a yeah. lot of successful bands and yes, knock loose is a giant band, but even at that stage was like a year before they really became something that hardcore kids were starting to grasp. It's more important for me to have a band that wants to be there. than be like, yeah, I guess we'll play your fucking fest, which is why some of these older bands still haven't played. Cause they feel like it's a fucking tribute or like, they're playing down or they don't want to go back. It's like, I don't need, I ain't got time for your shit. So they're a little bit different, but they're a great example. And I guess, would you say that the hardest thing about having business administration and people that get paid off of the efforts is that a band has to perform more shows at a higher rate to constantly keep money coming in? Or is that a mis mistake to think that way? Um, yeah, I don't think that's necessarily because like a band at the end of the day is going to use their, I think currently more so maybe back like in like 10 or 15 years ago, that was more of a thing. I feel like currently bands are going to just go fly by the, by their schedules and like, if it works, it works. And Yeah, and but the schedules are demanded by the people who make the money from it. So my question is, is which is, which is the driving force? Is it because there's people that make money from the band working that the bands are working more or is it because more hands are in the pot and there's taxes coming out of fucking everything from the shows, the merch that a band has to work more for the same amount of money. That's what I'm asking you. Well, the, the idea of bringing business, business administration on is for them to be also finding more additional opportunities for them to, to also monetize on, or at least put them out there, which they'll make more fans or followers to, to also monetize on. So it's like, and I think with people like, you know, going back to James Vitalo, that's somebody that's done his band and did record cycles and all the other corny shit that goes into doing a band that, you know, hopefully he, him being, you know, 
one of the spinning wheels on these, you know, hardcore bands or hardcore adjacent bands, he can kind of help, you know, breathe some fresh air into the overall business strategy that, you know, some of these bands get sucked into and then get fucking burned out on. Now, looking back at what you know now versus what you did with Mongoloids, what is there anything you learned later in life that you would have applied to any of the stuff that you didn't do? Um, is there anything I wear? No, probably not. I don't know. Maybe not. Just like, because all those things ended up teaching me something else. So it's like, I wouldn't have the knowledge I have to go back. Oh, like I, no, 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 no. I'm not saying change, but I'm saying is, is like, I'm not saying go back in time, but I'm saying is, is was there holes in what you were done that you could have maximized now knowing what you know from the business side of things? You're lost. Yeah, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Cause It's just that Mongoloids was just not that big, so it doesn't matter. It wasn't, yeah, it wasn't that big, and, like, it just never, it was a fucking mess. From 2009 to 2014, it was a complete mess. It wasn't even a band. I was what, just, sa- what I was, I was just hoping that you'd have a nugget of, hey, because then we could transfer this to other bands. So I'll just ask you more plainly. Simple mistakes that new bands make that you see and how you would correct them by Greg Balchetto. If you're friends with the people in your band, then don't fuck it. And then play as a band and don't like overthink getting fill-ins and doing this and doing that just to be able to make an appearance at a show or, or whatever it is, because that one show, it isn't shit. Who gives a fuck? There's a million, there's a million shows. Honestly, playing less is playing more. Like if you, if you take less shows, especially in your given area, you'll feel, I don't know if I feel like it'll do better in the long run rather than taking every single thing that comes to the table and being like, we're going to play every, we're going to do every tour. It's just, a, it doesn't really help to be honest. And like, at the end of the day, if you're actually friends with the people you're in a band with, if it was made like authentically and, and organically, then, you know, why push it so hard? You're like, all right, well, Johnny can't do this tour. So we're going to get Sebastian to do half of it. Then Christopher's going to come. It's just, it just overcomplicates it. Just if you're in a band with friends, just keep it that way and, and don't fucking, make it more complicated than it needs to be. Now, I guess something that we should talk about since you are the master of the digital realm, like fucking Dr. Strange of the digital world, what would you suggest for people in hardcore on how to maximize their potential within the digital space? Oh my God. Um, Simple. Keep it simple. Don't get into the weeds. All right. I'll, I'll make this easier. I'm going to make this easier because I see your brain going a million miles an hour. Yes, TikTok is the new money source, but like all things on the internet, someone's like, oh, you should make a TikTok. You're going to get a bunch of money. True or false? False. Instagram, paying for ads, worth it or not worth it? Not worth it. Facebook, should we even still have them? Yeah, Facebook's important, I think. I think it'll have to why. I think it'll have a glow up because Facebook is directly linked with Instagram. It's the same company. They, uh, same, same company owns both and, and they're always looking to kind of push it and, and move it and do what you can. I mean, they're putting a ton of money into uh, original series right now. So maybe like, what is that a, lay, lay out what that is? So they're paying, let's say 
Will Ferrell to have an original series on Facebook. So basically like TV programming through Facebook. Um, they did it with a bunch of digital creators recently. And that's kind of how I know. Will Farrell is a straight up hoe these days. He, he has that shitty podcast. That's not funny. Ron Burgundy podcast. Fuck you, I Ron Burgundy. It's ass. Is I didn't it? even, I actually lost a dollar bet that it, Will Farrell's not even the voice actor. And I was so sad that Will Farrell can't just be funny in movies anymore since he made that busted ass Sherlock Holmes movie. Oh, and I yeah. was stuck doing that. So what thing do you think gets overdone in seeking profits and the furthering of a career from the hardcore side of things that you would caution bands to not do quickly? I think a lot of the time in hardcore, I see people want to give their opinion too goddamn much. They run on Twitter and they say a bunch of stupid shit and they act like they fucking know something. And it's like, I, I don't know. I think overall just independent social media presence hurts a lot of bands too, because everyone in hardcore wants to feel connected. Well, juxtapose that with the amount of space that's used to talk digitally to people has overrun the personal interactions. And so there's these like internet cabals or coteries formed from social media interactions limiting the personal interactions and that like wholesome human interaction that comes from meeting someone at a show because you know a hundred people from the show on their profile but you may not talk to 10 of them versus the other way like the way i came up where you know everybody you know like i know all these people across the country because i traveled across the fucking country for 10 years and i know a ton of people's name internet names I made a joke that we should only we should have a show where we put everyone's internet name on a name tag or they can't come in because I don't know their fucking face and name, yep. not because of catfishing and all that shit, just because I don't I don't know faces the internet names, so it's actually reversed. I know less people in the modern frame because I know them from the internet and not from real life because no one fucking talks in real life. Yeah, I mean that's one hundred percent true. It's uh, yeah, I didn't even think about it that way. It's, I guess, and also like grow, growing up for me, like you'd see people that you're like, you know, like, man, that dude's fucking got the sickest style moshing or all oh, that guy's fucking so cool. Or you kind of like admire people when you're younger that now you can kind of see them exposed right, right away. You fucking open Twitter, find their page and be like, oh, this dude's a fucking loser clown. And well, I just, just don't feel that we should have any, anyone who thinks there's a healthy point in having all of your basic thoughts broadcast the world. I don't know if that's megalomania, narcissism. I don't know what the word is for it, but anyone who, and I was fall guilty. I felt really guilty that in Facebook and I, and I really stepped away from that for a bit. And I even had to learn how to speak on Twitter where it was like, yeah, not everything I want to say needs to be said and not every argument needs to be had. And no one needs to hear, no one is dying for my opinion on shit. So I say less and read more. And I think it's important because you also lose contextual importance when you have a conversation in the digital world. So I guess your, your advice is be on the social media less if you're trying to build your band up. hundred percent. I mean, like for, for even personally, like I also work in, in social media, quote unquote, but like, I don't, you know, I'm barely on it. I don't spend time like making posts and drafting tweets and all this bullshit. Like I don't even have a Twitter personally. I just don't care. Like, you know, does that, making some smart ass tweet that, you know, people laugh about for 
for a day and then what? Like, what the fuck are you doing? Go be an adult. I only went to Twitter. I went to Twitter like all things. Hey, there's this new thing. You should make an account. I make an account. I look and I go, this is dumb. And I keep the account for this hardcore and for myself, but use it seldomly. But then I found myself asking Bob, like, what the fuck's going on? He's like, you have a Twitter. Go on and look. And I would log on and lurk and look. And now I look at it and there's so much. I feel like Twitter moves the fastest, like the speed of light, followed by TikTok. And then like Instagram is sometimes like two to five days later. And fucking Facebook is like a month behind. I guess Facebook right now is probably finally figuring out that they stormed the White House. That's how fucking slow they are. But it's like, is, is TikTok involved in hardcore? Because I, I honestly don't know the answer to that. I know of two things. I know that there is someone from New Jersey who does like punk rock stuff. I know that social media people have been leveraging the platform towards that in the, in the space. And that's why I had kind of asked you if there's validity, val- uh, validation in the idea that the people who are on TikTok from our world could potentially monetize it in the same way that these younger ones. And my argument is, we have people that 200 people may come to the show and that's a really big deal. I don't, I know that the TikTok platform draws a bizarre different way where you can get 60,000 likes or looks views on one video and then next on the other. And their whole hashtag algorithm is a lot different than the other digital platforms. Yeah. So I imagine the right content will always find the people. But I imagine that often the people are doing is they're double and tripling and quadrupling down from Facebook content, Instagram content, Twitter content. So it gets hard. I've thought of ways to put some of this podcast on the Twitter. And I thought of ways to do it on TikTok. But I don't I don't really know real right way to do it. Or even if it's worth the investment of time to do one more little piece so people check out the podcast. Well, here's what I'll say is right now, major labels are pouring uh, an obscene amount of money into TikTok. So let's say, and and I think for bands like Code Orange or Turnstile or Knocked Loose, you know, they can benefit a lot to really understand it because if you have a single and I mean, like budgets going into singles right now, would be like, let's say $50,000 between for the new I don't even know, like the new Justin Bieber single is going to have a $50,000 budget. And what that means is they're going to take that budget and allocate it to different creators to create TikToks with the official sound. And then that- Hold on. (laughs) Start from the beginning. So original, so audios, TikTok audios is a huge thing right now. Major labels are pouring in a, a ridiculous amount of money. So let's say- Island Def Jam says, okay, we're going to give this song $30,000 budget over the span of 10 days. And we want 40 creators to do it in all different sizes. It'll be like a, a breakdown. Okay. We want creators in the 20 million range. We want 10 of those. We want five creators in the 10 million range, whatever it is. And then you have departments at these labels that are going in to deal with the digital marketing. And what that means is they're the ones reaching out to the creators or the management or the companies that these creators are at to be like, hey, we want you to use the sound. Here's the concept. So maybe the concept's like, I don't know, jumping off of a, of a ledge. And then when you land, your outfit changes on the drop of the song or whatever it is. You know, it's, 
it's, it's huge marketing platform right now. So I think if, I think in terms of hardcore or hardcore adjacent, if labels on this side of things understood a little more what goes into it, there is a chance that bands like Knock Loose can completely fucking break, especially if you have the right campaign where, you know, maybe they're, maybe it's a transition and they're wearing clown makeup or whatever the fuck it is that would be like, what the fuck is going on? I'm going to segue into something that goes further away from anything that I talk about. Do you have, do you ever work with any of them little rappers of any uh, kind? Like the, the, the real little rappers and then like the ones with all the dumb face tattoos, little rapper. Actually, they're both dumb face tattoo guys. Do you ever work with any of the little, little rappers and what's that whole world like? Um, I've never talked to or dealt with any of the hardcore adjacent ones, but I know I've said hardcore adjacent a lot of times on this podcast. It's, it's, sorry. I'm so fucking mad at you for doing it. I may try to bleep it out. Yeah. So, so yeah, I've never dealt with any of them, but in terms of like, yeah, I've dealt with, a bunch of them just on like a on a work wise and they're the heroin doing ones or the lots of weed smoke and strippers ones to be honest with you one, one i'll say by name will zan will zan i met a bunch of times and that i have a lot of respect for that dude because he is i don't know crazy. any you could talk about him like he's president i have no idea who he is i don't know anything about that world i just look at the internet and just go this is not for me all right, Lil Zan's like one of the, like he's had a bunch of problems and been in rehab and whatever. But like when I met him, I was with a kid that was under 18 years old and he was like, the kid was trying to be cool and talk about like stupid shit that, and Lil Zan shut him down. I was like, this is sick. He's like, yeah, like, he's like, you should be worrying that he straight up told the kid, you should be worrying about drinking root beers, not any of that other corny shit. And I was like, all right, I respect well, he's, it. He's named after a Xanax. Yeah, that's correct. Is he on drugs? Uh, currently, I don't know, but I know he's had a bunch of issues. Did he die and come back to life? No, uh, they all do at least a couple of times. It's all I know. And I, I don't understand it. It's not my world. And I don't, I say this with like, not mocking. I literally am just curious. Cause I'm, I have no foray into it. So I'm always curious when someone gets into that world. Yeah. Like, is, is it that big of a world? I mean, obviously little baby, which is hard Carl's favorite band of all time. Lil Carl, yo, can you help Hard Carl drop his mixtape, Lil Carl, in 2021? 100%. Let's do it. We could um, use the uh, sound bites from Turning Point. That'd be so fucking cool. That yeah, would be hard. I like that. Is there something that I should? Is there something that I should be doing better now that you know the business administration world? What would you give Joe McKay, operating either as this hardcore or Philly hardcore shows or this podcast? What am I doing wrong? What are you doing wrong? I mean, if you want to go, you could take all of the old fight videos that exist in it from a long time ago and then cut them into a TikTok and that shit would go viral. All the like like all of that stuff that that exists, like the Boston Beatdown DVDs and things like that, if that if that was cut into TikToks, it would be it would be viral content. Duly noted. But everything else I'm doing above board, I'm doing good. But you do it authentically. I mean, you, when you say do it better, you're doing something from your heart. So I think like it, that's the most important part is is operating your podcast and doing the things that you want to do that make you feel like, you know, good about it at the end of the day. It's like you're not looking at this to be 
you're looking at it the right way because if you're looking at it on a business, oh, I need to get more Patreon. I need to make sure that the the back end is situated by this sponsor, and you're just doing it because you love it. And and I think that's that goes way further than like bringing on a bunch of clowns to operate your shit. I have three and a half hours of Patreon content, and I'm so scared to release it because I just like talking to my friends and people that I admire. And I have a second podcast going right now that we're it's a totally different universe. And I just like doing this. And so like, I'm afraid to monetize it. And like I pour concrete for a living. I have union benefits. My hand hurts. Sometimes my back hurts. Um, but it keeps me honest. I don't, I don't seek the thing that's going to be most profitable. I've never been the most cool person in the room. I've, I've always felt like the fucking dork. Um, I'm no longer ultra violent. So I have all this more passive kind of like chill acceptance of people. I'm not like super aggressive. So I just like being around and I like seeing people do cool shit. And I want younger folks who are listening to listen and hear the words of people that they may look to and and learn from it. And I want to hear my friends who are amazing dads and cool, whether in the kitchens and chefs and all these different cool jobs and they don't have time to go to shows. I want them to hear about our culture and be like, yo, there's no, there's no one saying, well, you're not a hardcore person anymore because you don't go to shows. I want them to feel that they're still in the game and that hearing stories about people that grow to be beyond hardcore like yours. I want people to hear these stories. It's the it's driving force. And that's why I do it. So totally. getting what's that it was like the people before you are the people you look to to see their stories and understand and you know the people after might look to me or you or whoever so 100 percent. but in terms of like authenticity it's like you have a good structure where you you have a job and it's like in terms of advice i would say get a fucking job and then do whatever this other thing is like passion projects and then if it hits you're like okay cool my passion project hit i can look at restructuring my overall life but if it doesn't hit you still feel that accomplishment and it's not built around you know the monetization or whatever you're doing and like i think that's sometimes gets lost a lot of the time to be honest with you people are so obsessed with like overall virality and like just being getting things that like i don't know all right you just touched on something that'd be a great final follow question up when you say break or make it the metric is different for everybody. And I have often said with this off the seat of my pants, or just looking at the last 25 years of hardcore. Yeah. Your band probably could uh, use a edge out of living, you know, make, make some money. So you don't have to have the kind of jobs that me and Richie crutch and everybody else has playing in front of, two to 500 people a night for the next 20 years. But I don't suggest it as like, Oh, the minute you get to this metric of how many records sold or how many people are coming to shows just shut down other forms of making money. If you can do both. Do you think that there actually is a physical hard number or a base for when people have to take a band full time? And then the caveat will be the next question I'll ask after you answer that one. Um, hard number, uh, not, not really, because it also depends on how many people are like, just how, just the overall structure of what you're trying to do business-wise. If you have managers, booking agents, whatever, whatever, like whatever you need the independence. Cause like, you know, 
the guitar player of the band might need X amount of dollars to, to be able to do what he's doing. And the bass player might still be at home with his parents where he can kind of like operate a little bit more relaxed money wise. And that's, you know. So then the next question it would be, and the final question before we say our goodbyes to the learned wise, Greg Falchetto, how often have you seen pre-business time into business time, Greg, acts that are told that they need to take the thing full time if they're ever going to make it work and how often they actually make it work? Honestly, for, for business-wise, a ton of times because if you're dealing with in the, in the digital space, as, as we've mentioned, if, let's say you have a creator that is creating mostly on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok, but they want to take their YouTube channel to the next level. Well, those followers don't always go, you know, don't always translate. So it's like, if you want to, to take it to the next level, then you need to put the fucking time in to build that channel. You need to be posting weekly, twice a week, three times a week videos on that channel to really show people you're taking it seriously. And, and honestly, from, from, from work-wise, I've, I don't think I've ever seen a creator six or, or, or maybe once out of a dozen where they successfully were able to kind of like shift focus to a different social media platform and successfully deliver it. I feel like it's always, okay, well, I'm already big on these platforms that hit for me, but this other platform is lagging. Oh, I'm going to try it here and there. And then I'm going to bitch about it not working, but I'm never going to do what it takes to make it work. So you're suggesting you have to go all in or go all out. Hundred percent. Yeah. If you if you want something to be like, if you want to be a full time band and whatever the fuck you're, you know, you're aspiring to be, then yeah, you have to commit. Otherwise, if you're doing it some bullshit way that obviously isn't working, then just don't bitch about it. Just shut up and it just is what it is. If you if you can't do it how you're doing it and you're not seeing it work, it's either shift you know shift the pattern you're you're operating at or just shut the fuck up and and be happy with what you have. Well, I'll tell you what, that's lessons that we've heard said it again and again on this podcast. I'm glad that you've... Uh, Hold on one second. I'm on a Zoom. See what happens? Sorry. See what happens? We were Sorry. in the wrap. We were we went a little over the time. All right, wrap it up, B. If people want to get a hold of you, if you want to shout out social medias, you want to tell Bob Wilson to stop loving you as much as it, whatever you need to do, do it now and then get the fuck back to whatever you got going on. Uh, no, nah, I don't. Social media is whatever. I don't. I don't personally really give a shit about it. So just. And I'm uh, not linking you. Yeah, support support what you want to support. Support what you love, and fucking don't be a corny person on social media. Hey man, I love that I watched your whole progression grow to be someone who is the doctor of the digital space, but more importantly, that you gave us some amazing shows in New Jersey. Back to School Jam was something special that really took over in a big way a lot of the Northeast thunder of the younger bands. You had a big hand in so many things. I hope that as you grow and continue to build yourself in the professional world, that you continue to have the opportunities to have projects within hardcore. I know you have multiple bands going at any given time, and they play a couple shows, and you're too busy with work. We still love you. I love when I see you. I love your wife and your beautiful daughter. And I can't wait to go to have some time to break bread with y'all. Thank you for being on the show. Look for Greg Falchetto. Check out Mongoloids. Check out, what was the last one you did? The newest one. 
Uh, youth Collapse. Yeah, Youth Collapse. We talked about that. Yo, on the One C Unity comp, that Youth Collapse song is a fucking banger. Uh, maybe we'll open maybe we'll open up the one with that think we'll talk to carter maybe we'll have that be the opener the boy carter that's that's carter's the fucking he's got the right idea in terms of way being able to be kind of everywhere but not like in a punishing way in terms of like spreading his opinions all over the place and being a complete fucking asshole like carter's the fucking man he loves hardcore he loves straight edge he's from a place that's not you know, connected to. I heard that you could actually see his house when Forrest Gump started running, and in, in, uh, the beginning <laughs> of the, that's how deep south he was. And that's sounds about right. Now you promised me at the last. This is hardcore, and you're only lucky that we didn't have one last summer. That you were going to start taking Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and now that you <laughs> shouted out Carter, you owe us going to jiu-jitsu to make your life better. Yeah. What is, what is jiu-jitsu like currently? perfect amazing heaven i it, ours is outside of the philadelphia city limits so we were off for three weeks recently and before that three months and now that the counties are open we're back rolling got my ass kicked lovely last night or yesterday rather got beat up a couple times during the week get your ass into it thank you greg for being on the show and um we'll get on getting youth collapse be the opening track on this all right thank man you. take care buddy take care bye Later. Well, that's our episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I like the ability to go back and forth with our guests from time to time. And Greg is someone who is a little brother and good friend who has supported This Is Hardcore, worked his ass off as a stage manager the last couple of This Is Hardcores. I mean, when I'm talking like driving from New Jersey to New York and bringing us the back line, like he fucking busts his ass and I absolutely love him for it. And I was really happy to have this conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. The next week's guest is a surprise to me. We have a bunch of shit recorded, but specifically I was hoping to have this one guest and I'm awaiting to see if it works out. So right now it's a fucking secret. Deal with it. Thank you guys for supporting. Let me know. And again, TIHCpodcast.com will get you some pictures and some other links. Check them out. Till next week. Goodbye.